This program deals with devil worship and satanic beliefs. It contains explicit scenes and descriptions of violent crimes and rituals. Because of the program's theme and controversial subject matter, parental discretion should be exercised. Americans are asking, who attacked our country? You have declared it subliminal jihad against the United States. Can you tell us why? Everything pertaining to what's happening has never come to the surface. The world will never know the true facts of what occurred, my motives. And night fell on a different world. And Iblis is thinking, you know, I should be getting this position, not Adam, and this guy is created from dirt. You are a lieutenant colonel in the United States Army. Correct. Now, and how does the Army feel about you being head of the Temple of Set? And the conspiracy theorists can say what they will, but... I want you to give me power over Adam. And I want you to give me soldiers and minions and all of these things. The people have been have so much to gain and have such an imperial motive for putting me in a position I'm in. We'll never let the true facts come of our boards to the, to the world. And I want you to be able to give me the ability to whisper into the hearts of mankind. And uh, who was the grotto leader? I don't remember his name. You don't remember the name of a person who involved you in murder? Are these people in a very high position, Jack? Yes. Okay, well, all right, I guess we're recording. We're, uh, yeah, Subliminal yeah. Jihad, episode uh, two. <clears throat> welcome back to Subliminal Jihad. Um, I am your, uh, I'm your co-host, Dimitri, Dr. Poshlost, and... Um, oh, yeah, I'm Khalid. Cool. All right, so in this episode, um, we're going to take a little bit of a deeper dive into... Uh, a little bit more of a specific area, but it's still going to uh, be very stochastic and probably tentacles will stretch all over the place. In an, in an attempt to be mildly topical, um, we are going to uh, dive into the strange Freemasonic connections uh, of one Kamala Harris. Uh, the, yeah, uh, we're focusing on her aid, uh, her uh, an aid of hers. Um, who was uh, recently arrested for uh, impersonating a police officer? But, but um, not just any police officer. Yes, um, and and to a be clear, this was police officer. A, a yes, uh, literally a Masonic police officer. Um, so, uh, and this actually happened um, in twenty fifteen. Um, so it actually was when Kamala Harris was still California Attorney General, and um, I think I'd have to check exactly when she announced her Senate candidacy, but it probably would have been around this time, perhaps in the fall of 2015. Um, and basically what happened, and I'm going off an L.A. Times article, so this is not rumor or supposition. This was reported pretty uh, pretty. Norm, I mean, normally in the California press for such an abnormal story. Um, but just to give you an overview. Um, so from May 6, 2015, bizarre fake police force included Kamala Harris aide, prosecutors say. Los Angeles County Sheriff's Captain Roosevelt Johnson thought it was odd when three people, two of them dressed up in police uniforms he didn't recognize, strolled into the Santa Clarita station in February. One man introduced himself as Chief of the Masonic Fraternal Police Department and told Johnson this was a courtesy call to let him know the agency was setting up shop in the area. 
They met for 45 minutes, Jonathan said, but he was left confused and suspicious, so much so that he immediately ordered deputies to pull station surveillance videos so they would have images of the visitors. He also assigned detectives to check them out. Um, so this week, three people, three people were charged with impersonating police officers. They are David Henry, who told Johnson he was the police chief, Tanette Hayes, and Brandon Keel, an aide to State Attorney General Kamala Harris. Uh, it turns out that Henry, Kate Hayes, and Keel uh, had allegedly introduced themselves to police agencies across the state, though it is unclear why. A website, which we will get to, claiming to represent their force, cites connections to the Knights Templars and say they go back 3,000 years. The site also said the department had jurisdiction in 33 states and Mexico. When asked what is the difference between the Masonic Fraternal Police Department and other police departments, the answer is simple for us. We are here first, the website said. Um, L.A. County prosecutors said the whole effort was a ruse, though for what purpose remains unclear. Um, and uh, just as a final note, Jonathan said Keel, the Kamala Harris aide, did most of the talking during their meeting. Uh, Keel said in addition to his police position, he worked for Harris. When Keel departed, Jonathan said he left his card from the State Department of Justice. Um, so. Yeah. And uh, what, happened I was just, what happened in 2016? Uh, yeah, uh, that dude, uh, Brandon Keel, I guess, walked. Uh, um, you know, he went on to pursue graduate studies the case against them like collapsed according to the la times in 2016 so. yes and um and on that very same day uh well at first the charges against brandon keel were dismissed and then later that same day uh david henry 33rd degree who was by the way brandon keel's father-in-law uh dropped dead of a pulmonary embolism and mm-hmm. at that point the case uh was basically dropped um, and, uh, so where do we start with this? Because this is, uh, uh, now on the one hand, you know, K-Hive could say that, so what, everybody that works for Kamala, you know, anything they do is, uh, is, you know, automatically connected to her and stuff. But as we'll see, uh, Kamala Harris is one of the most connected political figures in California and California politics for anybody who doesn't know is uh, a very interesting and strange um, and uh, very an increasingly powerful um, sector of um, of American politics. Um, I think San Francisco politics for a long time was sort of um, particularly was sort of seen as a little bit of a backwater. I mean, you did have two presidents from California, um, but they were both Republicans from Southern California, Reagan and Nixon. Um, but the San Francisco branch, which is very directly um, bankrolled and financed and supported by sort of the ruling families of San Francisco, um, probably the most notable among them, the Gettys, um, uh, have basically had a heavy hand in um, promoting and financing uh, Governor Gavin Newsom. Um, uh, now vice presidential nominee Kamala Harris, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi, um, and uh, and Senator Dianne Feinstein, um, and and all these characters kind of mutually, all these political forces kind of reinforce one another and help each other, and now I would say have almost reached a a, a really um, 
a kind of apex, uh, at least in modern times, in terms of their power versus, say, like the New York or New England kind of uh, branches of the Democratic Party. Yeah, I think to understand the Masonic connection, it's useful to turn to how uh, this organization, the Masonic Fraternal Police Department, with its offices in 33 states and Mexico, <laughs> imagined itself. Uh, it might sure. not pertain to any of the stuff that you just talked about at all, but uh, it's very interesting to delve into their uh, sort of self-conception, their self-imagination yes. as per uh, their mission statement. <laughs> It um, is, yes. And we'll yes. read that. And I will just say before we read that, that um, that I believe there was a Vice article that was written about this whole incident that mm-hmm. sort of, in typical Vice fashion, um, sort of snarkily kind of laughed at the whole story, like, oh, dude, this is crazy, um, and basically said, um, you know, these people were pretending to be police officers and Freemasons, though they were likely probably neither. Well, they were not police officers, but... I'd say the evidence stands that they are uh, members of some kind of official Masonic lodge. Um, so the, but keep that in mind when reading these origins, because it, I I could, almost couldn't blame you for thinking that they completely made this shit up uh, when we read it. So um, yeah. I don't know. Would I you, mean, would ultimately, you like to, at some you, point, someone completely made all this shit up. But anyway, yeah. Sure. Uh, the first sentence of this is my absolute favorite, which is. The Masonic Fraternal Organization is the oldest and most respected organization in the world, quote-unquote world, literally quote-unquote world. Like, there are quotation marks around the world, world, which is capitalized. (laughs) Uh, So, it's the oldest and most respected organization in the quote-unquote world. Grandmasters around the various states are facing serious safety concerns for their jurisdiction and their family members. The first police department was created by the Knights Templars. This is, like, also in quotation marks, and it's pluralized with an apostrophe. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, Back in uh, 1100 B.C., so, uh, yeah. Uh, so, yeah, before, uh, uh, you know, 1,100 years before Jesus, the Knights Templars uh, were running around, anyway, uh, as the first police department. Yes. <laughs> uh, the Masonic Masonic Police Department, MFPD, is the Knights Templars. Same, like, grammatical error again with an exclamation point. Uh, when asked what is the difference between the Masonic Fraternal Police Department and other police departments, the answer is simple for us. We were here first. We are born into this organization. Our bloodlines go deeper than an application. Uh, this is more than a job. It is an obligation. There are, like, continual, like, uh, grammatical you know, it's and then, yeah, errors. like, and misspellings. Yeah, you always wonder what this stuff. Anyway, the yeah. Masonic Fraternal Police Department, MFPD, FPD is a Masonic sovereign jurisdiction municipality located within the incorporated city of Santa, Santa Clarita, California. The chief of police is Honorable Grandmaster David Henry, 33rd degree, and was elected and is governed by a Grand Supreme Council and 33 Masonic jurisdictions. He currently oversees one half million members throughout the United States. We are not sovereign citizens, nor do we condone terrorist activity, sovereign citizens, or clandestine. I haven't been able to really figure out what that even means, sovereign citizens or clandestine like very what is- suspicious thing to just insert in there that they are not sovereign citizens um yes. we'll, we'll, get, we'll get back to that uh, do you, we don't condone terrorist activity yeah so, like sovereign cl- citizens or, are, what yeah, is what, what is clandestine it almost seems like they're <laughs> supposed to be set up as opposites where like clandestine is a substantive noun that's being juxtaposed with sovereign citizens as like you know sovereign citizens are open terrorists and i see i see i don't yeah i don't know anyway very strange 
the last paragraph is the Masonic Fraternal Police Department, MFPD, provides services to Masonic sovereign grandmasters in their Masonic jurisdictions, as well as other fraternities, sororities, and Greek organizations. The Masonic Fraternal Police Department will be located in 33 other states, including Mexico City. We all support, uh, we support all law enforcement agencies. Our mission is to preserve the integrity, honor, and legacy of our founding fathers, Masonic organizations, all grandmasters in their constitution slash by space laws. We will uphold our sworn obligation to protect sovereign grandmasters in their jurisdictions. And the last paragraph is just in bold. God bless the United States of America with five exclamation points. Yes. Um, yeah. So... Mm -hmm. Yes, uh, there's uh, really a lot more of this, like, uh, well, not that much more. There's about, like, a little uh, well, uh, other thing on like their origin, read, uh, their origin uh, yeah. statement. Yeah, I can uh, read free, uh, the, on the homepage is uh, the origins of Freemasonry, yeah, subheader, so, Freemasonry and its origins. Yes. Um, and uh, it is filed under uncategorized. Um, <laughs> And it's a very simple website. It's MasonicFraternalPoliceDepartment.org. Um, yes. It's still up. You don't even have to go to the, arc the Internet Archive for it. Um, I assume that it was probably run by David Henry, and when he died, I don't know, he prepaid the uh, domain name for uh, at least five years after. Um, okay, so... It's proudly powered by WordPress. It is. Uh, um, yeah. So probably a free site. Um, yes. But uh, but interesting. Yeah, okay. Um, so Freemasonry and its origins. There is no consensus when it comes to how the Masonic fraternity got its start. Many Masonic scholars believe that it was founded in the Middle Ages by stonemasons' guilds. It can be said that the symbols and language that the fraternity uses in rituals originated during this period. The Rigius poem, which was printed in 1390, is the earliest known document that references masonry. However, this poem was a copy of a work that was published at an earlier date. The first Grand Lodge of England was formed by four London lodges during 1717. From that point on, you can find more detailed records on Freemasons. Over the course of three decades, the fraternity managed to spread across Europe and even reach the colonies in America. Colonial Americans were drawn to Freemasonry. Many of the nation's founders, including George Washington, Paul Revere, and Joseph Warren, were Masons. Benjamin Franklin was the head of a Pennsylvania fraternity. John Paul Jones, John Hancock, Baron Frederick von Steuben, John Sullivan, and Nathaniel Green were also Masons. Chief Justice John Marshall, who helped make the Supreme Court what it is today, was a Mason as well. Freemasonry has continued to develop as the years have gone by. Today, it is a fraternity with a global presence. It focuses on studying, personal improvement, and improving society via philanthropic actions and getting involved with your community. At the tail end of the 18th century, this organization helped promote enlightenment ideas, such as individual liberty, freedom of worship, the right to dignity, and the significance of public education. In America and Europe, Masons were strong supporters of early public schools. They also supported democracy. <laughs> Across the 19th and 20th centuries, Freemasonry continued to expand. During this period, there wasn't any sort of social safety net overseen by the government. Thanks to Freemasons establishing homes for widows, orphans, and the elderly, the disadvantaged were able to have some measure of security. 
Masons have continued to promote these practices to this day. In the United States, the fraternity donates nearly $1.5 million daily to a range of philanthropic causes, such as medical research, children's hospitals, and giving back to the community. Masonic homes ensure that both Masons and their loved ones are well cared for. Globally, there are over 4 million members of this fraternity. They strive to help the populace deal with modern challenges. They foster positive relationships among people and show people that the future can be better. And um, this is my favorite line at the very end. This short history was written by one of our members from Maui Dumpster Rental Company that operates roll-off dumpsters. Yeah. And, uh, um, and, and yeah, oh, believe, believe yeah. me, if you look it up, um, I guess the author of what I just read, they have 15 cubic yard dumpsters, they have 30 cubic yard dumpsters, and... You uh, don't even need to look it up. It's hyperlinked from it is hyperlinked. this website. R- There's a link to, like, the hawaiiequipment.com slash dumpster rental Maui. Uh, and, yeah, it's very, like... Uh, it's a little bit too on the nose almost like there's, this is definitely like, yeah, like a Wayfair type conspiracy theory, like waiting to bloom with the, yes, the yes. these dumpsters. It's uh, extremely yeah. kind of pizza gatey, um, uh, yeah. kind of we, look, look at this business. Is it a front? Um, <laughs> we were saying the storefront on the contact us page of, uh, this website is hyperlinked from the Masonic return of police department.org. Uh, looks like, you know, like a Breaking Bad, like, front, uh, business, like, that they would have as, like, a set on that show, or, like, uh, it's, like, the vacuum cleaner guy who, like, will create you a new identity or something. It's very, like, yeah, ominous-looking, the picture it, they took. It looks like the kind of front business that, um, you know, um, that, like, uh, the Tommy and Ghost would go meet with, like, a Mexican drug cartel, you know, capo at, you know, in New Jersey to, like, discuss, uh, you know, um, taking over truth. Yeah. Or something like that. Yeah, um, exactly. you know, just yes. a very kind of, uh, but you know, Hey, maybe they just provide, uh, roll off dumpsters to everybody in, um, in Hawaii. Yeah. Um, uh, I'm not saying they don't, but it is like, cur- like amazing that they apparently someone involved in this business wrote that weird history of Freemasonry for this website. Uh, and was a member yes. of this Masonic Fraternal Police Department organization. Allegedly, I mean, it it's uh, it doesn't say the actual name of the uh, of the author, but uh, I would have to assume. And yeah, they're in Hawaii. This group is in Southern California. Santa Clarita is like about thirty miles north of Los Angeles. It's in L.A. County, um, and. Um, it, it, yeah, it's just a little bit, it's a little bit strange. Um, the contact us page of the website is also interesting. Not the uh, Pacific Equipment or the the Maui Dumpster Rental, but the Masonic Fraternal Police Department website. It's kind of interesting because like there's a if you go to contact us, it says this content is password protected. To view it, please enter your password below. Uh, and then there's a form to send a message separately. So maybe if you have a password, you could view like all the messages that were sent onto the website. I don't know. That is but, weird. Yeah. That's a, that is another kind of. Um, like pizza gatey like comet ping pong as a password protected like admin login page you know <laughs> for um 
But I mean, uh, like like Pizzagate, sometimes you just have to you know put it on the shelf and <laughs> yeah, don't we don't know what that is basically about. But I mean, from what I can, so I looked into uh, this individual uh, to see if in fact that. Uh, they were real Masons because, you know, I mean, it's not inconceivable that somebody, uh, it's incredibly bizarre that somebody who works for the state attorney general's office would waltz into a police station and, you know, present themselves in such a way. Um, and presumably they would know that that is illegal to impersonate a police officer and et cetera, et cetera. Um, but basically what I was able to find was um, that they do seem to be a legit group and they had a lot of political pull and they were very active in um, South Central Los Angeles politics. Um, in fact, I found a uh, I found a press release, I believe, from 2012 um, wherein they are giving a community award um, and that is Brandon Keel and um, I think uh, Tanette Hayes uh, was the the woman and um, and David Henry yeah, Tanette Hayes, David Henry, and Brandon Keel were giving a like sort of community uh, service award to Representative Maxine Waters, um, who you know is a pretty well-known uh, LA Congresswoman um, and has been in office in you know since the '90s and was actually kind of one of these California politicians that you know held uh, town hall hearings uh, she held I believe she was involved in holding the uh, the town hall hearing in either 95 or 96 after Gary Webb's Dark Alliance series came out where CIA director John Deutsch uh, came to uh, assuage the community that the CIA was not importing crack cocaine into black neighborhoods and then um, former LAPD detective Michael Rupert stood up and uh, sort of a uh, owned him to the uh, elation of the entire crowd. Um, and But, but it, much like Barbara Lee and Karen Bass, um, who, you know, used to have it right, used to, you know, support Fidel Castro, um, but then, you know, you fast forward to the same period, 2012, and she's giving speeches, commencement speeches to Scientology opening up in South Central. So um, I think that... There, there's definitely a pattern of these sort of weird kind of culty groups moving into places like South Central Los Angeles and really plugging themselves into the political power structure. Um, and and so I think we have to assume that whoever these people were, they were not wacky kooks who had no kind of access or contacts in the sort of California political structure. It seems pretty weird that, like, uh, someone of the personality to create that website, it's just so strange, like, you know, who... I mean, who do you... Might that originate with? How many members did they actually have? Was it just the, like, you know... uh, Was it really, like, half a million, as they claim? Like... Well, I, I believe that my reading of those claims is they're sort of talking about the total number of Masons who are in, right, yeah, you know, York, right, or Scottish, like, yeah, sure, and and by all accounts, it it appears that they are um, a legitimate Masonic lodge. Um, you know, I, another video that we found on 
um, a very mysterious pl- uh, YouTube playlist that I believe is called like David X Henry uh, Freemason Illuminati NWO in all caps, um, <laughs> and by an account that says David X Henry, but I suspect that this is an account that was uh, maybe researching him after he died and was compiling playlists and uh, and uploading uh, videos of him speaking at various community events around Los Angeles. And uh, there were a few very interesting videos um, that popped up there. In one of them, it was a local news report from, I believe, uh, when basically when George Zimmerman was acquitted for murdering Trayvon Martin. It was a report about how black community leaders um, were coming together in South Central to support peaceful protesting and to not riot or destroy property or clash with the police. Um, And in that video, there was a prominent local pastor um, who's basically giving a press conference with an LAPD officer. And standing right behind him is a group of community leaders, including uh, David Henry, 33rd degree. Um, And not only is he there, but uh, we'll, we'll play the audio now. We thank God for the privilege of being able to come together with our officers, with our Freemasons, with our preachers, and also our gang intervention specialists. So he specifically, as you can see, shouts out the Freemasons by name, and David Henry is on stage with him, so I assume that is who he is talking about. So this guy obviously had, you know, some some juice in the community. And then there was another video, um, which I will play, for, which is from, it looks like some kind of Masonic gathering where everybody is in their uh, most worshipful, you know, robes and attire and things like that. And Aprons? Be, they wear yeah, they're Masonic aprons. aprons. They're yeah. Masonic aprons. And basically, um, he is... It begins with Brandon Keel speaking, and he very interesting says, I think this video is probably from 2013 or 2014. Very general point of me, I have her authority, which I was recommended for my position from the U.S. Senator's office. Uh, Senator Feinstein uh, recognized me for my work uh, in the assembly and, and wanted me to go forth to the Department of Justice. This is my son-in-law, so what I really wanted to say, in two years, he will be running for U.S. Senate. Of the state of California. He very confidently uh, states that um, he is going to be running for United States Senator in two years, which I would presume to be 2016. Now, that's interesting because he was working for Kamala Harris at the time, and Kamala Harris is the one that ended up going uh, and running for that Senate seat and winning it. And, you know, today is the vice presidential nominee. It was unclear, like, how close was he to Kamala Harris? Like, how, like what, well, could she know about this, like, weird, m- like, intense Masonic interest that he apparently had? Like, uh, It's a really uh, like, good question. I don't know. I believe that he was the—I'm going to have to look up his official job title in the California Department of Justice, but it, it sounded kind of like a mid-level, I think, like an assistant director of community affairs— in the California Department of Justice, um, or sorry, the Deputy Director of Community Affairs for Kamala Harris's Department of Justice. So it sounds like kind of a mid-level um, civil service position, you know, maybe not. I mean, he wasn't her chief of staff. Uh, I don't know how much direct 
um, interaction they actually had. It was reported on at the time as a as Reuters said here uh, quote potential embarrassment uh, as the Democratic Attorney General campaigns for a U.S. Uh, Senate seat. So she was already running at this point um, mm-hmm. in May 2015, as this article states. And uh, I mean, I maybe another way of putting it is. This guy, uh, Brandon Keel, he also says in this video that uh, he, I guess, received a personal recommendation for his DOJ job from Senator Dianne Feinstein, who is one of the most powerful elected figures in California politics and comes out of the same milieu of San Francisco machine politics that uh, Kamala Harris eventually came out of. And, you know, she... Her political uh, star began to rise after um, Dan White walked into City Hall and shot George Moscone, the mayor, and Harvey Milk, which was several days after Jonestown, um, whereupon Dianne Feinstein became mayor of San Francisco and then ran for Senate in the early 80s and seems to uh, was the senator when I was born and, you know, will probably be senator till I die. But, uh, but, but you know, so she gave according to Brandon Keel, a personal endorsement. So this guy was, uh, and he worked, I believe, in the state assembly in a similar kind of community affairs position. And so, I mean, he was well regarded. Um, and I think this is, uh, I think he was seen as somebody who kind of potentially had a future in California politics. Yeah. It's interesting because, yeah, like it's interesting in a way because it's like this whole thing of like, oh, is it, are they really Freemasons? Like you mentioned the Vice article. I remember the line, uh, you showed me that article. I remember the line being something like they like said they were police and masons when they were uh, presumably neither or something like that. You know, like uh, yes. apparently neither. I don't know, but like yeah, it was kind of like a quippy line about how they weren't real Freemasons, but. What mm-hmm. really makes one a real Freemason? It's, like, really, like, a tenuous thing, you know, like, to say, like, you know, you compare it to, like, other sort of uh, religious debates about, like, who, you know, what's heresy, what's orthodoxy, like, it's kind of a little bit nebulous to say, like, oh, why well, are they really official Masons, you know? I mean, it it's, doesn't predate Christ by, uh, you know, 1,100 years, but it is a pretty old, you know, concept or organization. Like, uh, yeah. so, I you mean, know- if you are, like, a, nom- a nominally Masonic group that is, like, you know, really has insinuated itself into the engine of power in some way, I feel like that is a, you know, you've done good in terms of being, like, a Masonic group, like, it's pretty much should be considered. Absolutely. Right, I, I like, think I think that's a really important point to make when we talk about, like, who's really... Because you're right. Like, in terms of the actual sort of command structure, I mean, Freemasonry is by nature a kind of distributed network with a very loose hierarchy. It almost operates in a similar kind of function to the internet where you have various nodes and there is ultimately a hierarchy, but I think you've seen over and over again in history, the kind of line between official Freemason and not official Freemason is uh, pretty fuzzy at best, and the secrecy that is baked into it makes it even more difficult to sort of gauge. And and then even the interaction between different forms of Freemasonry. So there's basically, as we'll talk about yeah. later with, uh, with Levy, how there wasn't always total agreement between Catholic Freemasonry and Protestant Freemasonry. Yeah. Or in the case of this, um, in white Freemasonry and black Freemasonry, like Prince Hall Mm -hmm. Freemasonry was a specifically, uh, I think, predominantly African-American tradition because lodges, uh, I'm pretty sure this were quite segregated until 
maybe the second half of the 20th century. At the same time, I think there was in, there were interactions between these lodges, even though they were segregated. So I think it would be maybe a mistake to think that um, any uh, African American Masonic lodge is completely uh, you know separate from or even like opposed to the white Freemasonic power structure. Um, yeah, I think and certainly they should be they... considered real Masons, you know, it, it, like, it's just a replication of the sort of, like, racist uh, ideas of the, the Freemasons who excluded them to say that they weren't, like, you know, real Masons. It's similar sure. to the debate actually around, like, uh, uh, Muslim groups, like, in the United States, like, the Nation of Islam and things like that, you know, people are like, oh, were they real Muslims because they believed, like, in the prophethood of the Elijah Muhammad and things like that, you know, so mm, there's these same kind of, like, nebulous debates. I mean, it's not really quite the same, but it's similar, you know, similar terminology, yeah, yeah. like, or, uh, to make an even kind of bigger point, uh, like Satanism um, and the kind of idea of like, is somebody officially a Satanist or not? Um, oh yeah, or yeah, or like uh, what the, the yeah, like I'm not a you know I don't really believe in the devil, you know I'm a yeah like well, all this there, stuff yeah like that, uh, um, or, re- or like even saying like a real Satanist doesn't believe in the devil, you know those people who do believe in Satan aren't really Satanists, you know like yeah yeah I mean there's all that back and forth and then there's kind of the idea of like uh, if you're uh, you know, people defining it as like you need to be a member of kind of like a, a an occult order or a satanic church to be actually a Satanist, which I disagree with. I don't think you have to be a member of a group. You could be like like one of the things about, you know, any kind of like dark magic is that uh, you can sort of be a congregation of one. You can be both priest and uh and flock in one person and you know i mean just or just small groups of people and actually i think that type of satanism is or, or you know what dark occultism whatever you want to call it but i'm comfortable sometimes calling it satanism is i think much more prevalent than maybe people would give it credit for especially among like i don't know um like hardened criminals yeah. and like tweakers and i'm just thinking it makes about sense i feel like that. that's actually like, yeah that's what's kind of like so like uh inescapably cringe about a lot of like occult organizations is that like they're all about like self-initiation and becoming like ipsissimus or whatever you know but at the same time you're in this like weird like group you know so yeah definitely like the self-initiation aspect yeah like uh it was a huge thing i mean you know, like, it's a thing in uh, other religious traditions as well that maybe wouldn't be considered esoteric or, or occult, but, like, definitely, especially in, like, any kind of, like, initiatory framework of, like, anything that comes, like, after Crowley, that type of stuff, like, you know, the, like, it can be self-contained. I feel like masonry more is, like, it comes out of, like, uh, an idea of, like, guilds, like, it even said on the website, you know, like, a stonemason's organization, so there is, yeah. like, a communal aspect to it. Yeah, I, I think that is a defining here, feature, as opposed to something like Satanism, um, I think that that is a defining feature of Freemasonry. It's something that I would, like, call, is, like, if it adopts the symbols, kind of the mythology, and operates as a lodge, and exercises like kind of political and social power within its community it's i feel like it's even e- yeah it's even easier that i feel like it's like self-ascription it's self-ascription of like you know if someone's saying like i'm a mason then i feel like that you know we you know we i sort like you know they're imagining themselves in those terms so it is like part- i guess to to paraphrase my angeli when somebody tells you they're a freemason believe them the first time yeah
other point I want to bring up, because I feel like the news kind of maybe, I don't know, they, they sort of glossed over this, but the specific claim, or they kind of didn't actually, they sort of harped on this as being ridiculous, but the claim that the Knights Templars uh, were founded in 1100 BC, <laughs> I, like, I actually suspect that that was like a typo. Uh, hmm. I, I yeah, feel like I mean, he maybe. I mean, say, they were founded in 1100 else he AD. Says is that it emer- yeah, like around 1100. Well, he, in the 1100s, early 1100s. I, I feel like yeah. like that is not a terribly inaccurate timestamp if you say 1100 AD uh, for no. the Knights Templar. That was around the the early Crusades and stuff. So I think like and everything else he says, you know, emphasizes it's like medieval roots. He's not talking about ancient Egypt or Phoenicia or Babylon or anything like that. I I, I mean, Knights Templar. Yeah, I think, that's interesting though. It is interesting though because I think that that's sort of mystic or like, you know, uh, certainly later on in occult traditions, probably by the time that masonry like really emerged, as he said, like around, you know, the 18th century, then uh, I know he said like there was some document from like the like 1390 or the late 14th century where they were mentioned. But I, I think the, the real popularity of like Freemasonic groups and lodges and things like that was in the the 18th century and certainly by that time there was an association between like mystical traditions and the like the knights templar looking to the knights templar as sort of a uh model of kind of uh esotericism or uh initiatory beliefs like that's sort of true uh they had figured out some kind of true a higher secret. Maybe it's good to talk about. We kind of touched on this a little bit last time, but maybe it's good to actually go a little bit into the Templars because they're actually connected in about, a way. Yeah. To, do you want to do the a little dive into the Knights Templar now? Because now we've referenced it in like multiple contexts. I mean, we have everything from Anders Breivik saying that he went and killed eighty some odd you know, school children in Norway as a neo-Nazi under the, you know, the order or the blessing of some kind of Knights Templar organization to uh, one of Kamala Harris's staffers claiming that he's part of a Freemasonic police department that is a resurrection of the Knights Templar. So I think maybe some disambiguation is in order. Uh, yeah. Like, who and the hell a- were the Knights Templar? And I think you've you've done a little digging on that. So yeah, brushed up wanna... on my Templar info. Yeah, and they're interesting, especially because they have a connection to something that we've talked about in the past, which is the Baphomet, uh, the icon or the idea of Baphomet. This is um, where Baphomet, the kind of icon, the image of like the goat uh, spirit or deity, uh, basically comes from, right? In the Western Yeah, well, the idea of Baphomet as a goat is, like, Eliphas Levi, who we can kind of talk about as, like, a, uh occultist who was interested, an occultist and socialist, like, in the 19th century, who was interested yes. in uh, the Templar myth, as, like, many people, including Masons, were, like, at that time. I mean, maybe we talk about the real Templars, like, what we know about them. They're, they're mostly known for what we talked about a little bit on the preliminary episode of Salim al-Jihad, where... Uh, they were all executed, like, uh, around the turn of the 14th century, the late 13th century. Yeah, um, yeah. So was, just, to, yeah. J- just to nail these dates down. And actually, I think if you—I think I'm right about about the police de- department website saying 1100—they uh, meant to say 1180 because the Templar military order was officially founded in 1119 AD. So yeah. that would be about— spot on i think they i don't know there's so many spelling errors and like grammatical errors in that description not so much in the other one with the the dumpster guy he seemed to be much more kind of um 
you know. Yeah, uh, that was like actually a website where it seemed like you could buy a dumpster, like if you <laughs> needed one. Like yeah. definitely. A solid uh, yeah, the Freemasonic website is like uh, yeah. There's all that weird stuff like where you wonder like is this a deliberate like what's going is that on a form here? Of trickery. Like, I mean. Uh, yeah, I don't know. I don't know. It could just be like you know consistent spelling mistakes. People do have them, but the 1100 BC thing is intriguing because I don't know. I think of like when you're kind of self-consciously writing a date and you're like. Uh, most of the time people use AD cause that's like the, what we live in currently is AD. So yes. like people, like when people think about BC, they usually think of that as being, I guess it was medieval times. So maybe they're thinking, Oh, it's old. So I don't know, but people kind of, I don't know. You'd think that someone For interested in it would degree, know. Yeah. I don't know. Like, like before it, Christ, like, yeah. yeah. So, um, so the official name is the, uh, the Papyrus, uh, Papyrus Comilitones Christi Templice Salomici. Yeah, the nice, um, yeah, with the, the poor fellow soldiers of Christ and of the Temple of Solomon. Yeah, which was Al-Aqsa Mosque, which is where they were established when they were founded. They had headquarters there. And their original, they were kind of connected with the hospitalers uh, who also, like, uh, were sort yes. of like running a hospital in the area. Yeah, um, the Knights Hospitalier. The, yeah, the Templars themselves were uh, more oriented around protecting. They were formed after, I think, some pilgrims were attacked. I mean, because they were, like, occupying, like, Muslim lands, but, uh, you know, and they were on, like, a crusade and everything, but obviously there are people who wanted to visit, like, holy sites in and around Jerusalem, Christian holy sites, uh, but they were menaced um, by, uh, you know, angry Muslims, and so the Templars kind of organized to protect uh, pilgrims, and they, you know, eventually were, became a sanctioned organization by the Catholic Church. It's interesting because, like, actually the sort of nexus or the, the big hot spot of Templar activity where the Templars were most entrenched was actually in France. Um, yes. Yeah. And it, particularly they, after they, the Holy land was lost. Yeah. Um, it became like a huge thing uh, in Europe and like, there wasn't really too much. It's interesting because it comes back around like uh, when we get into their execution with a sort of connection with the East but uh, initially, uh, there like there or what in, in actuality there wasn't really too much connection between the Western orders and the Eastern orders. Like practically speaking, they were kind of uh, you know autonomous, and they were they were in certain ways not fully autonomous, but you know, and obviously they imagine themselves as being part of a collectivity. But uh, yeah, their sort of customs and how they were embedded in in each place uh, where they were centered, each place that they had you know a uh, you know an establishment. They, you know, they were embedded in that, and they kind of adapted to, into to that environment, um, and uh, yeah, they were they had that kind of level of, of, of independence, but they they were also, you know, the they were deeply embedded. Uh, not only did they adapt themselves to their community, but they were deeply embedded. They were really important, like centers of religious life. Like uh, during that time, they were very powerful, and they had uh, a lot of wealth. I actually read one time that the Templars are like this sort of pre, uh, they're sort of. Uh, System of they had like they were the, the creators of the system of credit or something like that. Yes, Some kind yes, of like they, they were, were instrumental sort of the forebears to of the, modern to, banking. Exactly. Yeah. It, I mean, it says here right in the Wikipedia description that non-combatant members of the order, who made up as much as ninety percent of their members, managed a large economic infrastructure throughout Christendom, developing innovative financial techniques that were an early form of banking, building its own network of nearly a thousand commanderies and fortifications across Europe and the Holy Land. Yeah. And arguably, I think this is very interesting, forming the world's first multinational corporation. 
Yeah. So I think when we think about it, that's where they were sort yeah. of headquarters or the commanderies. If, yeah. I think it's very interesting now that we live in an epoch of hegemonic multinational corporations that, um, of which I think throughout the history of certainly America and Europe, you have so many, um, Freemasonic, uh, notable Freemasonic individuals were involved in the construction of that system. The idea of the modern uh, multinational corporation and every this whole Freemasonic tradition kind of stem back to this original religious order. Um, so yeah. it's in a way kind of it is a it is like a, an old school, long term intergenerational subliminal jihad. <laughs> That is like waxed and waned throughout the ages, but I think uh, and has sort of uh, contorted itself and splintered off and turned into other things. But a lot of the ideas that ended up kind of taking uh, hold in the so-called Enlightenment um, were uh, I don't know experimented with uh, in some ways uh, by the Knights Templar. Yeah. So yeah, there was an idea that they. Well, I mean, it's not an idea. The idea really was. Uh, either created by their actual practices or by, uh, you know, the people who accuse them of uh, heresy, blasphemy, True. sodomy, I guess, I guess you could say, like, their, prax- uh, their praxis in the real world was uh, something that sort of uh, reemerged over time and lived on and evolved into other yeah. things. Well, yeah, like, then the idea of that, what, what I, the idea that I was, I was referring to was the idea that they were engaged in this kind of, they were, you know, oppressed for having heretical ideas, and later on, you know, the Enlightenment, the idea that these heretical ideas actually were uh, truer than the idea, the sort of, uh, you know, medieval ideas of their, that they were sort of wrongly oppressed for a higher uh, truth that they had, that they had access, became appealing to people. And that's kind of uh, why there's a fascination with them in Freemasonry and in occultism in general. just uh, list from uh, this is probably the best article that I found about them because their the reasons for their execution remains really mysterious you know did they yeah. really do anything because as we talked about they were like a very powerful and influential order and they were only really answerable to the Catholic Church uh, yes. if even that and they were uh, significant money lenders including to King Philip the fourth of France yeah uh, so yeah, exactly. So King Philip the Fourth, like uh, or Philip the Fair, uh, he was sort of the main architect of their, uh, you know, trial and everything like that, and their, uh, you know, their eventual execution. Uh, you know, there's this article uh, which I found to be a compelling argument. Uh, it talks about like not only what what occurred to you that yeah he was self interested and they were a threat to his power as like organizations like this are oftentimes to like uh, you know ruling uh, social orders throughout history like it reminds me of the Janissaries like in the Ottoman Empire you know uh, and the auspicious incident like uh, and stuff like that um, but anyway so that might occur to you that you know they were a threat to his political power but uh, this article actually has a very interesting take. Um, that uh, he actually is actually his battle against the Templar is actually symbolic in a way. It's called a heresy of state built the fair, the trial of the quote unquote perfidious Templars, and the pontificalization of the French monarchy. It's by Julian Thierry, 
uh, in the Journal of Medieval Religious, Col- Religious Cultures, uh, mm-hmm. which is 2013, volume uh, 39. Um, and he lists what the accusations against them were, which might be valuable for people uh, who don't know. Uh, he said that the accusations laid down in the arrest warrant of September 14, 1307, can be summarized in the main five points. One, to be admitted to the order, every Templar had to take part in a secret ritual, a reception ceremony requiring him, it is said, to deny Christ three times, each time insulting his body by spitting on a crucifix. Ultimately, this proved to be the main accusation. Number two, during the initiation ceremony, new Templars have to kiss the officiant not on the mouth, as traditional during rituals of allegiance, to symbolize the exchange of breath, but at the base of the spine, a euphemism for a kiss on the anus, the sign of a pact of the forces of evil and entry into a demonic sect. And you maybe recognize that theme from sort of like witch uh, uh, mm-hmm. ideas, you know, like the kissing the, the devil's butt to become initiated. Uh, anyway, Kundalini so, yoga. Yeah. Three, <laughs> the newly initiated Templar was also told that he should not refuse to engage in sodomy with members of the order who might solicit it. The special rule designed to protect the brothers against the temptation to fornicate with others outside the community, was supposedly written into the order's secret statutes, making, quote-unquote, unnatural couplings frequent among the warrior monks. Um, yeah, it mentions their warrior monks. It's an interesting aspect of them. They kind of combine that with a sort of military order for the first time, uh, this kind of idea. Anyway, then number four, the Templars worshipped an idol. This would be uh, the idol Baphomet. And uh, it's interesting, uh, like, I don't know if we clarified this in the last episode, but really, like, the term... Baphomet is very obviously like a corruption of uh, Muhammad or what he was called at the time, like Muhammad. Uh, yeah. And yeah, so uh, oh, kind yeah. of the Baphomet, idea of this. Muhammad, yeah. Yeah, we talked a little bit about like, uh, or I mentioned a little bit earlier, like that this kind of association with uh, the East uh, comes back around. Um, so they were basically accused of being evil Muslims, like in some way, or like uh, there's some sense of like their corruption by uh, that. There's definitely like uh, negative ideas about what Muslims did influenced the idea of either, you know, the idea of what the Templars were doing in their accusations. Uh, so does anyone know, were they influenced by Islamic practices? Like, did they have rituals that could be traced to any kind of contact with Muslims? Like, it's unclear, like, you know, what was the actual nature of their practices? Extremely mysterious. But anyway, that was definitely uh, the idea was uh, something that was very much uh, similar to ideas about, you know, Muslims being, it's funny, it was really a case of projection, but, uh, you know, Catholics at the time really saw Muslims as being idol worshippers. Yeah, despite so, no, despite no icons or, you know, yeah, yeah, um, no, yeah, like, uh, Muhammad as a brazen head is something that, like, you see even in, uh, 17th century plays, like, uh, things, like, it's a very persistent idea, uh, even some of, like, the first, uh, like uh, comedic dramas and Fran- or comedic plays in France, like the short little skits, like uh, are sort of crusader-based dramas, and they show uh, Muhammad being depicted as like a, a brazen head that that Muslims worship. Uh, yeah, mm-hmm. so it's very like uh, persistent idea. Like we could go down that rabbit hole anyway, but that's just number four and five. Finally, the priests of the order celebrated mass without consecrating the host, another means of attacking the body of Christ attributed to the temple. Christ was offended not only in his representation on the crucifix, but also in the sacramental form of the Eucharist. So those were the accusations that were leveled against them, summarized by uh, uh, Julien Ferry. So the leaders of the time were Jacques de Molay and Geoffroy de Charnay. <clears throat> I guess there's, um, I don't know, there's some historical opinion that because King Philip uh, the Fair was deeply in debt to the Templars. He wanted to merge the Templar orders under his own command. And uh, I guess Jacques de Molay uh, rejected that idea. Um, 
And basically, I guess he would have a uh, material motive to denounce them as devil worshippers because by abolishing the order, he could abolish his sizable debt to them. Yeah. Uh, this author, uh, which I liked, he takes it in like a, a different kind of uh, direction, saying that uh, the motivations of eschatology and the pontificalization of the monarchy could easily converge, saying that, you know, the Templars were kind of cast in this image of uh, these almost like millenarian heretics that uh, mm-hmm. the French king would then sort of do battle with and destroy to sort of uh, show, uh, invest him kind of as a source of religious authority uh, and kind of create uh, or begin uh, the French monarchy as kind of a, a royal theocracy. Um, that's kind of uh, the take here. And I just, I like I see, the I sort of symbolic component of it. Uh, there's, uh, yeah, some, uh, there's some interesting uh, kind of ideas. Like uh, he talks about the idea that like their offenses against the body of Christ were sort of allegorized with the king's sort of mythical body. Their offenses of the body of Christ were perhaps not unrelated to a process of constructing the kingdom of France as a mystical body, the head of which was the king. It's uh, interesting, you know, uh, like, again, like, you know, with all these sort of uh, interpretations, uh, no one can really know for sure, and, you know, people admit that, but I like uh, the idea of considering, uh, especially... I want. I like to apply these type of analytics to today, but especially in a medieval context, you can see how important like the the symbolism and the sort of cosmological theatricality of it um, is is yeah. important. Um, yeah, it's very yeah. interesting. It almost sounds as if the king is saying, you know, by doing your rituals, you are literally doing violence to my body. Ex- yeah, or yeah, in a way, he kind of his execution. Their execution was for him. Uh, his own ritual that kind of mm. appropriated their mystical power and brought it unto him. Like in the same, like, you know, in the sort of like materialistic sense of, you know, him wanting to merge their assets or acquire their assets. It's actually something that has like a higher or, you know, a higher or at least a parallel uh, meaning where, uh, yeah, apparently like the prophecy of Daniel is very uh, widely circulated at that time. And, uh, you know, he had referred to a time when in, in reprobate Jerusalem, there would be a cult abominable to God on account mm. of the domination that a wicked people would have there. And like, uh, there's actually no evidence that there's, uh, this actual passage in, uh, what Daniel said. Yeah. There's, uh, this idea could easily be sort of transposed, uh, into the, this, this period and this, this circumstance. You know, we've gone over a little bit about the medieval um, Knights Templar. Yeah. Now, it's cool to talk about their, like, uh, sort of the r- resurgence of interest in them, uh, kind of in the 18th going into 19th century, like, and the sort of Freemasonic connection. Yes, yes. Well, um, here, the, here's where I was going to kind of go with that, is that um, there actually is... Now, of course, there are all kinds of orders, like we said, with like between Anders Breivik and the Freemasonic Police Department. There's all kinds of orders that claim uh, that they are both... Uh, well, uh, you know, some, some say claim they're Freemasons, but basically that they are sort of a resurrection of the Knights Templar. Now, the important thing to remember is that the Knights Templar, as a sort of uh, branch of Freemasonry, um, actually does exist to this day, and um, and was kind of founded, I believe, in um, about seventeen, about basically the seventeen forties um, in Europe. Uh, the Knights Templar, or full name, the United Religious Military and Masonic Orders of the Temple and of St. John of Jerusalem, Palestine, Rhodes, and Malta, um, 
is, uh, is, is a proper fraternal order that is affiliated with international uh, Freemasonry, although it, it has a slightly different um, structure and the degrees that are um, conferred are uh, a little bit different than other uh, perhaps you know, bigger, more mainstream uh, Freemasonic lodges. Um, so basically, I think it began in France... Um, and let's see. Uh, Chevalier Ramsay um, was a uh, was a Scottish-born writer who lived most of his adult life in France. And um, I guess uh, he spoke about Freemasonry in the Crusades in 13, uh, 1737. Um, and he claimed that European Freemasonry came about from an interaction between Crusader Masons and the Knights Hospitalier. Um, and uh, let's see, I'm just sort of going through, like, the basic points right now. Um, uh, in 1751, Baron Karl Gotthelf von Hund und uh began the Order of Strict Observance, um, which ritual he claimed to have received from the reconstituted Templar Order in 1743 in Paris. Um, and he also claimed to have met two of the, quote, unknown superiors who directed all of masonry, one one of whom was Prince Charles Edward Stuart, um, and, um, and who was a claimant to the throne of Great Britain as Charles III, though I guess he, he never quite made it. But uh, so I guess you see around the end of the 18th century, the mid, mid to late 18th century, um, the sort of new Knights Templar Freemasonic organization popping up in Scotland and England and in France. Um, and uh, I guess we, I could go through kind of the whole thing, but the, the basic point is that the, they exist today and they exist in the United States. Um, and, uh, and, uh, in fact, I'm just looking at the Wikipedia right now. U.S. President Andrew Johnson uh, photographed in a Knights Templar uniform in 1869. So I guess he was yeah. a member. I mean, they're a big, like, theme, like, you know, uh, in, like, Freemasonry especially, but also in general. Like, there's a fascination with them. And I think, yeah, what really happened at the time was that, again, it's like an Enlightenment sort of period. Like, even when we go back to the website, there's the emphasis on the Enlightenment, on, you know, the democracy. Like, as those sort of ideas uh, were having so much currency, there was also this sort of surge uh, in these sort of uh, eclectic um, religious uh, interests. Um, and the idea that the Templars, again, well, you know, as I mentioned, the idea that the Templars had actually been onto something, uh, maybe like Gnosticism, you know, was... An appeal. And this is kind of where the famous picture of Baphomet that we that we see uh, is sort of developed as uh, it's the idea of what Baphomet, you know, really was like the idea of Baphomet as being sort of a, a positive symbol for for occultists um, is, you know, instead of just like kind of a boogeyman that was worshipped by the Templars that, you know, uh, or we really have no idea. But, uh, you know, uh, in the sort of. Uh, you know, cycle, uh, or sort of the accusations against them, uh, it becomes sort of this, it becomes appropriated as sort of a, an icon of, like, the real mysteries, the truth. Uh, even in, in the words of Levi, uh, who drew that famous picture, uh, Eliphas or Levi, mm -hmm. um, he, like, uh, he called it the true Catholicism, you know, uh, which was represented by, by Baphomet, this kind of dualistic figure, goat-headed androgyny, um, with, you know, the alchemical phrase tattooed in his arms, and uh, 
the sort of white moon on one side and the black moon on the other. You know. And uh, what what was uh, what, what was his reasoning given for why this is the true face of God? Um, his reasoning given uh, for the true face of God, um, he. This, let me read his own statement about it, this guy, uh, Eliphaz Levi. Um, and, uh, yeah, so this is, like, around, like, the, the mid-19th century, uh, I believe, yeah. Um, and he says, let us now, and he's kind of replying to people who had criticized some of his occult writings, his idea of Baphomet. Uh-huh. Uh, let us say now, for the edification of the vulgar, for the satisfaction of Monsieur le Comte de Merville, for the justification of Bodine the demonian, demonomaniac, demonomaniac, for the greatest glory of the church, which has persecuted the Templars, burnt the magicians, excommunicated the Freemasons, etc., etc., let us boldly and frankly say that all initiates of the occult sciences, I am talking about inferior initiates and profaners of the great arcanum, have adored, still adore, and will always adore that which is signified by this dreadful symbol, Baphomet. Uh, yes, in our profound conviction, the Grand Masters of the Order of the Temple have adored the Baphomet, and they have made their initiates adore him. But the adorers of the sign do not think like us that it is a representation of the devil, but rather that of the god Pan, the god of our schools of modern philosophy, the god of the theurgists of the school of Alexandria and of the Neoplatonic mystics of our days, the god of Lamartine and of Monsieur Hugo, the god of Spinoza and Plato, the god of the primitive schools, even the Christ of the dissident priesthood, and with this last qualification ascribed to the goat of black magic, will not astonish those who study the religious antiquities and who are acquainted with the phases of the diverse transformations of the symbolism and dogma, be it in India, be it in Egypt, be it in Judea. Um, and, you know, there's many, like, dimensions. He's also interested kind of in magnetism, like, uh, you know, uh, sort of developing thing, especially around animal magnetism as proposed by, by Mesmer. Um, so this kind of idea of like duality, uh, was, you know, a big deal. And he, you know, uh, he was also actually really into socialism. Um, I I didn't know that until I read up on him the other day that he, and this is like pre-Marxist, so pre-Marxism. Yeah. It was like um, Saint-Simon or whatever, you know? Yeah. Yeah. A lot of, there was a lot of French, I mean, there were a lot of Christian socialists, a lot of like neo-Catholic socialists. Um, he also seemed to be kind of a Bonapartist. Uh, he supported Napoleon III's coup, um, but then kind of fell out of favor with them after a while. Yeah, he was, like, an ultra-vanguardist, kind of. He, like, didn't believe in the ability of the masses to, like, realize anything. He need, They thought there needed to be, like, a secret order uh, that would achieve it, um, yeah. basically. Yeah. Like, that socialism would be brought about, like, by basically, like, a super elite hidden vanguard. And, like, he was all about, like, you know, uh, being Catholic as well. Um, yeah, and yeah, yeah. It's strange. In some ways, he was almost like a, like a you know, a... A dirtbag Trotskyist, dirtbag <laughs> left Trotskyist, who like you know veered into like esoteric Strasserism. Um, he could have um, had a podcast. Um. <laughs> yeah, he definitely could have had a podcast, and he would have he would have had a podcast for sure. Um, yeah. yeah, one of my favorite quotes by him is that you know he was very interested in in uh, Freemasonry. Uh, and uh, especially in the Templar doctrine that was talked about by a lot of authors who were associated with Freemasonry. Um, but, uh, you know, he... Uh, and there was this one uh, book that he read, uh, Orthodoxy, like, Masonic, or something like mm-hmm. that. Yeah, Orthodoxy, Masonic, Masonic, Orthodoxy. Uh, as a, you know, uh, he lauded it as a great project. Um, and, 
you know, he was interested in the sort of dogma of Freemasonry, um, but he was upset because he, he thought the Protestant Freemasons, uh, like he called their rights puerile, and he declared <laughs> that uh, the establishment of a new world would not be achieved by simple workers and certainly not Masons. So he was, like, <laughs> scandalized that, uh, you know, they... Uh, were associating themselves with like, masons, uh, you know, actual, bri- you know, bricklayers. He thought that was I, I like, always wondered yeah. that, like, when the transition went from masons being actual people who laid bricks and built buildings to, like, a bunch of politicians and lawyers and businessmen. Well, yeah, it's interesting. Well, I mean, I guess there are still people who are masons, like, in the literal sense of, like, stonemasons. But, I mean, like, guild organizations in, like, medieval times, like, I think that, like, the idea of it, like, start... They attribute it maybe to, like, the the 14th century, or 15th century, I think. Like, uh, where there were stonemasons guilds. A lot of the time, guild organizations did have sort of rituals, like, and things like that, you know, or even some kind of esoteric... Uh, uh, meaning assigned to their trades. Uh, that's something yeah, like in uh, the, it was often designed yeah. to confer like trade secrets, right? Uh, yeah, maybe or like uh, yeah, ideas are just yeah, like uh, it could be used in, in many ways, but definitely like these organizations. I mean, not, like in a way, like they're kind of like fraternal orders. They're like proto unions, like in a way, but uh-huh. yeah, uh, yeah, you know, they often have like some kind of yeah, like symbolism or. or uh, kind of esoteric rationale uh, for, like, the meaning of their profession, like, the ontological meaning of being uh, XYZ. There's equivalents, like, I'm thinking of, like, Futua i Sultani, which is, like, a book uh, by uh, Persian uh, author uh, Kashifi, uh, which kind of does the same thing for a bunch of different uh, trades and crafts. And I think uh, uh, Evlia uh, Shelobi also, like, did wrote something similar where he talks about, like, the sort of ontological significance of all the different roles and trades in, in Ottoman society. And that was often like sort of integrated into guild practices and things as well. So uh, I could definitely see a parallel to that in like stonemasons organizations. Uh, but yeah. yeah, it's interesting. Like, I guess that, but the revival of like the idea maybe around this time, like in the 18th century, like the Scottish right and stuff like that probably popped up like around then. Um, and that's probably when it started to get, become like a greater interest for like, petit bourgeois like people um Mm -hmm. yeah and and also much i think it's worth saying that much like i think how we were discussing in the last episode about the temple of set and how um i i think there's often kind of a big difference between the sort of rank and file acolytes and um and somebody like michael aquino who had extensive military intelligence you know, uh, an extensive military intelligence background and was involved in all kinds of covert operations is like, there's the Masons that you see like driving around in your city that have like the little G, uh, whatever it's called. Um, the little survey tool with the G and, you know, I mean, I I see those people, uh, driving around in LA sometimes and, you know, you kind of take a look at them to see, you know, and, and a lot of times you're kind of surprised at how just sort of normal they look. And you realize, like, that they're driving, you know, maybe a beat-up car or something like that. So it's not like everybody on the surface level who's, like, a member of a Masonic Lodge is, like, a captain of industry or, like, a, you know, super powerful political figure or, um, like, a, 
you know, uh, a satanic psyop officer or anything like that. But I think there's a big difference between, like, the very high up people who are involved in certain kind of Freemasonic lodges and sort of the ones you see on the street corner, just in the same way that, like, if you see, like, satanic temple people running around, like, you know, uh, uh, protesting, like, uh, you know, a Ten Commandments monument outside of, you know, a city hall building. Um, it's like these people are not, like, the super high up ones to uh, uh, that are you know operating at a very deep level. Um, yeah, like uh, yeah, it's uh, no, like uh, and I think that there's probably organizations within organizations. Like certainly in the Temple of Set, uh, that's a thing. Like there's oh, orders the, within the temple. You know, the order of the trapezoid. Yeah, exactly. The order of the trapezoid, the one that's specifically like about being a Nazi or, you know, uh, <laughs> Germanic runic stuff. Uh, uh-huh, uh-huh. yes. The order of the yeah. Um, um, so yeah, I imagine that's probably the case in, uh, these other orders as well. Uh, yeah. in, in certain Freemasonic organizations. And again, like, just like with the temple of set where, uh, you know, it's kind of like a bre- it breaks off from, uh, Satanism, and then there's probably, you know, people who have broken off from that and created their own little subsects or, or whatever. Incarnations of the Knights Templar, but let's uh, let's fast forward back to the present day, um, and uh, basically uh, our our vice presidential nominee Kamala Harris and um, the backing that she has had, as I said earlier, uh, from the very earliest stages of her political career, from the wealthiest uh, families in San Francisco, who basically control the Democratic political machine there. Um, and uh, so I'm going to take a look at an article. You know, this isn't even like, it, you know, conspiracy writing. Uh, this is in Politico from August 2019 uh, titled How San Francisco's Wealthiest Families Launched Kamala Harris um, at splashy weddings, charity balls and all the right restaurants. She hobnobbed with San Francisco's money to elite and made lasting allies who backed her at every stage of her political career by Michael Cruz. And um, I think the uh, the main qu- uh, the, the main personalities here. It opens with a uh, with a description of the lavish Napa wedding in 1999 of uh, of oil heir Billy Getty and his bride Vanessa. Um, and uh, one of their guests of honor was uh, then the uh, I think just the assistant DA of San Francisco, Kamala Harris. Um, and according to this article, uh, her two biggest backers when she initially decided, um, to run for district attorney, um, to unseat the longtime incumbent, uh, Terrence Hallinan, um, 
were the aforementioned Vanessa Getty, um, wife of Billy Getty, um, who is described as by then one of Harris's closest pals, and Susan Swig, um, who were both, quote, head-turning surnames in the city's choicest circles. Um, and, uh, and actually the third friend of hers um, was a uh, woman named Summer Tompkins Walker, who was uh, the daughter of Susie Tompkins Buell, another major Democratic donor who was married to Mark Buell. And so Buell, Getty, and Swig basically uh, raised uh, what this article calls uh, an early eye-popping amount of money. Um, I believe they spent... Uh, I think they outspent Terrence Hallinan, the incumbent, um, either two to one or three to one. They actually got reprimanded for violating campaign finance rules because they raised so much damn money for her. Um, And uh, basically, uh, that was enough to kind of get her over the top um, and uh, and make her the district attorney. Um, And then every kind of campaign since then, her campaign for attorney general and then her campaign for United States Senate, and I'm sure the sort of shadow campaign to get her picked as Biden's VP um, were all very enthusiastically and probably aggressively um, uh, promoted by these same San Francisco families who now, I'd say, with the sort of full integration of Silicon Valley capital, um, kind of moving up from Palo Alto up to San Francisco proper. Um, San Francisco, I think, is in a much more powerful political position to sort of call shots than um, maybe it had been, you know, 30, 50, 100 years ago. Yeah. I kind of, like, generally, like, assume that, like, anyone, especially anyone who's going to be a nominee for the vice presidency, I assume they have, like, an incredibly powerful, like, political machine backing them and, and driving them in some way like uh no one at this point like they might style themselves in that way but like no one at that point is truly like an outsider um yes. so that like you draw attention to the idea of families uh and i wonder if you know maybe sometimes those machines are generally clustered around families but you know i'm thinking back to the mention in the masonic personal police dot uh, com or dot org uh statement about how like this is in our bloodlines or whatever uh Mm -hmm. is like is like is there some kind of like special like family connect like what is the you know like uh what is like uh here to to this that's like more than uh or is it just like you know this particular uh strain of something that is like common to everyone like obama like biden uh trump yeah, yeah. I, I well, I, I mean, that that's kind of where it gets interesting with these politicians. And maybe it it sort of evidences it, it, it serves as evidence that a lot of these politician figures. I mean, if you think about it, I mean, for every George Herbert Walker Bush that you have, that is an absolute New England blue blood. And even by kind of old, old waspy standards, he was kind almost relatively new money, I would say. Certainly the Bush side of the family was. I mean, they had done all right for themselves, but it was really uh, George Herbert Walker Bush, I believe, uh, I think it was his mother uh, was a walker. Um, so it was Prescott Bush marrying into the Walker family, which was incredibly powerful and I think was related to... Um, 
I forget. Uh, no, actually, it was Barbara Bush that was related to uh, Franklin Pierce. But basically, they almost had to. They had some very politically advantageous marriages into higher society um, uh, that sort of minted them. But for every one of those, even you have a lot more people that seem to really kind of be plucked out of. They don't seem to have any kind of uh, uh, significant bloodline. If it, well, I mean, if you think about um, Bill Clinton. Uh, Jimmy Carter, Barack Obama, um, though they, they have interesting, their parents often have interesting backgrounds. Um, uh, you don't see that they're necessarily the children of elites, um, which would almost in some cases lead me to believe that they're kind of, uh, servants in a way. It's kind of like the, the distinction between kind of, um, a CEO and like a chairman of the board in terms of class, right? And I wonder, well, you know, there's a lot of times something like, yeah, there's some unique, like, spooky aspect to a lot. Of, like, I'm thinking now of Tulsi, who we definitely should do an episode mm. on. Like, oh, yes, she, like, you know, might not be, like, you know, a, uh, it was, she almost is, like, kind of like a weird, like, Mason, but not like, you know, she's like in a uh, weird, like, uh, eclectic kind of Hindu cult around some dude. Uh, yeah, like, like a schismatic yeah. Hare Krishna cult that was founded by a white guy in Hawaii named Chris Butler, who, despite, you know, what whatever she says, like, she still apparently is a part of his cult and, you know, considers him her guru. Um, and her parents were members of that same cult as well. I believe her, her husband is a member of the cult. Most of her staffers are members of the cult. Um, so in a way, it's kind of like having like a Scientologist uh, politician where, you know, except this is this. Is, and there's all kinds of rumors in Hawaii that uh, Chris Butler is, you know, in addition to being kind of definitely a raging homophobe and um, kind of racist, um, is uh, is maybe involved in certain criminal activities, maybe drug trafficking. Um, we can dedicate a whole episode to uh, to that. But it, it is interesting that Tulsi became sort of the chief antagonist to um, Kamala in the primaries. I mean, she yes. she landed kind of the most effective hit on her during one of the debates, um, mm-hmm. which was almost. I mean, it didn't get Tulsi anywhere. I mean, the Democratic Party kind of despises her, um, but. Uh, I think it did poke a hole in Kamala's boat. Um, Yeah. Although Tulsi eventually did end up endorsing Biden, uh, which I really think, like, that it was because, like, Bernie Sanders, like, was too, like, uh, you know, critical of of Modi, like, and had, like, Pakistanis, like, on his staff and and things Mm, like that. I think that that was really, like, like, why... was his uh, campaign manager? Yeah, yeah, and also, he had just generally, like, not been, like, so, like, you know, uh, loyal to to, to Modi and had just, like, made certain statements about uh, India's uh, overreaching in in certain domains. Yeah, Uh, yeah, and so, yeah, I think that that... Because she had generally been a Bernie person, and she endorsed him against Hillary, um, yes. who was, like, a representative of the same kind of, you know, group. Like, I'm sure, like, you know, uh, Obama was supporting Hillary in the same way that he's, like, supporting Biden, the same kind of, like, maybe with slight differences, but mostly the same, like, team of people. So you'd think, like, that if she was so opposed to Hillary. So, but I think that it's because Bernie made some, you know, during the, the campaign, since, you know, the political situation in India had worsened considerably since 2016. Yeah. I think that yeah, but um, well, just as a as a sort of uh, tangent on that, 
Do we know what, cause the, the one thing that's often overlooked about Kamala is that she's half Indian. Um, yeah. and do we know anything about her either interactions with the Indian, with officials in the Indian government or her opinion of Modi? Um, I saw like, uh, that Hinduva people don't like her. Um, like that they think that she's too, because I mean, like the thing is like, they're so right wing Mm -hmm. and like, they're so like, you know, uh, genocidal all the time (laughs) that like any kind of like, you know, gesture like, uh, towards like the idea that like Modi, uh, should cut it out and like that he should be like kept in check, uh, and that like there's a humanitarian crisis going on, Mm -hmm. um, that, like, you know, is too much for, like, those people. Um, and I don't know, like, uh, Tulsi, like, never, would never in a million years say anything critical of them. Uh, like, you know, or critical of, of Modi, I don't think. So uh, I think that she was a much stronger, um, you know, ally. Uh, but, yeah, I don't know. Uh, I mean, I assume that in a way, like, in practice, for one, she'd be, like, the vice president, although who knows what's going to happen to Joe Biden, but, like, in practice, I'm sure, like, there would just be more, like, conciliation, like, uh, and, you know, yeah, she's, uh, pretty, like, uh, jingoistic in her, in her politics, like, pretty much, like, a strong, like, kind of Atlanticist and, like, a believer mm-hmm. in America's, like, existing kind of alliances, you know, she's, like, tough on terror, as far as I know, so, uh, tough I think. Tough on terror, uh, yeah. yeah. Yeah, uh, um, tough on crime. Period. You know, she's a good, like a yeah. So uh, I yeah, don't and, imagine and that like it's uh, subs- but yeah, I don't know, and I don't know like uh, what uh, her background is in that respect. Like either, I don't know. Like uh, I did notice in that article that you sent that there was like you know someone remarking about her ge- saying that she has the genealogy to move in a lot of different circles. You know, uh, and like that. Uh, that is interesting. interesting. You know, not I mean, to like, we you know, did, yeah. Just to discuss, like, briefly who her parents are, her, her father is uh, Dr. Jerome Harris, who is a Jamaican um, immigrant to the United States who became a Stanford uh, economics professor. Um, and I guess specializing in, I guess, broadly, like, post Keynesian economics. Um, and uh, apparently, uh, ironic, somewhat a little bit like Pete Buttigieg's parents, who are uh, Gramsci scholars. Um, I think at Notre Dame, um, yeah. again with Gramsci and like the spooky, spooky people studying Gramsci. It's very interesting. Um, but, uh, in a similar way, it appears that, um, uh, that her father, at least in a kind of academic sense was sort of sympathetic to various forms of Marxist economics, which is mm-hmm. interesting that, you know, his daughters went on to be consummate neoliberal elitists. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, we'll, we'll, we'll eventually talk about Maya Harris, uh, Kamala's sister, who's basically her closest confidant. She used to work at, uh, the Ford foundation, which is, uh, has a, pretty damn spooky history and um and and a pretty extensive history of sort of financing sort of ngo uh endeavors that seem liberal but mask some kind of sinister imperialist objective um including uh financing kpfa um which we'll (laughs) talk about later um early in the 1950s and uh and very good at moving about in the world of kind of well-meaning liberals and um, and also going overseas and doing various, I think actually 
Obama's mother worked for the Ford Foundation, um, Stanley Ann Dunham. I personally think she was she worked for USAID as well and just happened to show up in Indonesia like a year before uh, like a genocidal coup, anti-communist coup that like murdered half, at least half a million people. Um, and she married like an Indonesian army officer. Um it just smells a little CIA to me, but uh, mm. um, yeah, I think that she I've was like that. an anthropologist. Yeah, there's always like an, a different. It's interesting the different angles that come up and all these different sort of ways to apprehend like uh, the sort of secret uh, identity, the secret selves of these political figures. You know, like the Obama CIA one is one that I've heard. Of course, we all know like the secret Muslim conspiracies and like uh, I, I've noticed like some of, like the birther stuff even popping about Kamala. But I feel like that's just I don't even know what the argument is there like what like uh it sounds it, it's less like, it's less that she's hiding something sinister and more it sounds like pointing out an obscure rule and saying well you know her parents weren't u.s citizens even though like she's an anchor baby essentially uh is kind of what they seem to be arguing she was born in oakland so it's not controversial i think that's just kind of a, a silly thing and i think even um even Obama, I mean, talk about a subliminal jihad. I think the birtherism thing with Obama was very interesting because it it did something similar to, like, when that kid ran to, like, the pizza place and, like, shot it up to, like, free the pedos. Like, it simultaneously, like, diverted any questions people were having about this guy. You mean free the guy. children and, and kill the pedos, right? Or yeah, maybe to justice. free the pedos. Maybe yeah, they were yeah, trapped down there. Shoot the padlock off the basement, uh, off the basement door, uh, et cetera. And, um, <laughs> yeah, no, but, like, but if you think about it, it's, like, there were legitimate questions about both Obama's parents and about his early career and some of the travels that he'd had and, like, the first company he worked for was, like, uh, sort of a business, like, intelligence kind of company that maybe had operated as a, a kind of, a, sort of like McKinsey, like, kind of a CIA yeah, front over the years. Yeah, it's interesting to think, like, was his background so different from... Pete Buttigieg. I heard a rumor that Obama had like really been like uh, drawn to Andrew Yang as a as a possible VP like for Biden. Huh. Uh, I heard a rumor that that's what Obama like had had wanted, but I, I'm not sure like if that uh, was true. It was in some some article. Um, but it kind of makes yeah. sense. I, I mean, yeah, Andrew Yang. I mean, he went to William and Mary in Virginia, uh, kind of a spooky, yeah. uh, kind of old old timey like old. The old guard kind of university um, that I think has a lot of ties to the like military intelligence sort of complex. Um, yeah. John John Stewart went there too. Um, but yeah, like, well, my original point was that like some of the stuff like around like uh, you know people to judge or like some of the sort of suspicion of some of those other candidates like it, if it, in the case of Obama like it all ended up being channeled into like the secret Muslim like birther stuff. Yeah, um, exactly. That like you know uh, even like but. It's interesting to think about who the main proponent of that was, was Trump. He was, like, the uh, biggest yeah. champion of birtherism. Like, yeah. uh, you know, he was, like, the biggest pusher of, of that. Uh, so, It's like, kind uh, of, like, in the very mild, um, much milder conspiracy climate of, like, 2009, 2010. Um, I mean, it was, it was also the first time that – it's so easy to forget, but, like, one of the people that really ignited the flame of, like, cons- this – genre of conspiracy theorizing uh on the right was glenn beck who got a primetime spot on fox yeah. news 
Um, and honestly, I mean, he was kind of like stealing a lot of his shtick from Alex Jones and kind of watering it down a little bit. Mm-hmm. And um, but but kind of, you know, delving into that. Um, and, and kind of also doing a misdirection thing where, like, he's either a secret Muslim or a secret communist. Um, yeah, or both. Because, or both. like, they're really the same. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's crazy. I don't know. Maybe, like, some people don't, like, really remember Glenn Beck because he really just vanished. But he was so, like, uh, the whole idea of Soros yeah. is because of Glenn, Like, the whole, like, you know, the prominence of Soros. Like, is that didn't come Beck, from sure. alternative media directly. It came from Fox News primetime. Yeah. Yeah. And and I think like I still like you know me like I I deeply dislike uh, George Soros and think he is evil and like satanic in his own way, but not in not in the exact way that they posit that he's like evil and satanic. I mean, for me, it starts with the fact that he's like a like vulture finance capitalist that like uses his money. That first of all, like his financial career is like evil um second of all his like uh his activities i mean it's funny that people always call him a communist when his first endeavors in the ngo world were to sponsor these ngos in the eastern Bloc that were specifically used um i think in conjunction with like cia fronts like the national endowment for democracy to like sponsor like solidarność and um various like kind of liberal protest movements that ended up playing a role in toppling all of like actually existing socialism in Europe. So it's like the idea that he's like a Leninist or he's a communist is like, I mean, he's, if you read like what he says about himself, like he is kind of a like hegemonic liberal, um, like a neoliberal, um, you know, open society foundation. Like he has this whole, I forget the the name of the scholar. It wasn't a German scholar who kind of came up with like open society. It's kind of, for sure. I mean, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, a lot of the stuff but, but, is, I mean, like, that was all misdirected. Yeah. It's, well, it's, like, perpetu- like people, like, genuinely think, like, Hillary is, like, a malice, you know, like, uh, or that Jill Biden is gonna, like, you know, I mean, that's Trump's, like, main campaign message is that, like, Jill Biden is, like, you know, a malice or he's gonna implement, like, uh, maybe not a malice, but, you know, like, a far-left communist mm-hmm. who's gonna, like, you know, and if, like, I literally have seen people saying on Twitter, like, if Joe Biden wins, like, that's the end for America, like, you know, communist. I saw... On Fox oh, News, sure they were saying well, Joe Biden was supporting Sharia law, like literally. Yeah, yeah. Like, um, <laughs> I think they're kind of throwing everything at the wall because yeah. some of it will stick. And um, and like that that QAnon video that I sent you the other day um, about how you know the the Patriot, just like we talked in the last episode, the Patriots inside of the NSA are yeah. uh, have been tracking the pedos this whole time, and they're going to drop the hammer. And thank God we have like uh, Lord Jesus, President Trump to uh who's in cahoots with the these patriotic nsa officers who's going to uh yeah i mean even though it's like he was friends with like so many pedo adjacent um figures like jeffrey epstein and roy Cohn um over the years and (laughs) like it's just and like why hasn't he done it yet it would be a big deal if he did but yeah like weird where's the arrests why hasn't he arrested hillary yet um yeah QAnon has gotten into that world of like when prophecy fails like uh you know a lot of the time the you know like uh, this uh, old argument from the book when prophecy fails like again i can't recall the author but uh, just the idea that, that, like, yeah, when prophecy fails, like, people become, like, more intensely devoted to, like, the, the prophet or the idea, um, or the, whatever movement the prophecy was a component of, uh, and that's definitely happened with QAnon, where it's like, okay, it was almost kind of set up, like, where, 
like, uh, you know, oh, the deep state, like, won't let Trump win or they're going to, you know, something like that. It was, like, simmering, you know, like, uh, he kept saying, like, it was rigged, you know, like, it was, mm-hmm. it was prepared, like, almost for a world where they were still marginal and, like, they would have to resist, but, like, they're resisting when, like, presumably the guy who some of them think may even be Q himself is president, like, you know, so it's, yeah, yeah like, uh, yeah. the uh, deep per- state perhaps- is basically, like, it's become, like, a way to, like, uh, rationalize the fact that like you know obama isn't in gitmo yet like somehow like there's this just deep deep state that trump has the swamp is truly bottomless like his drainage of it will just go on forever but yeah yeah um yeah it's (laughs) it's uh uh, constantly no it's true i mean they're kind of um pushing it off to tomorrow and um and, you know, saying things like, you know, Hillary's wearing, like, an ankle bracelet or something. Um, or I love that one QAnon. I don't think it was official QAnon, but the person who was, like, saying that, like, every single famous person was executed by a military tribunal over the last, like, 15 oh, years. Oh, yes. Right. <laughs> that was great. That was great. Um, was very interesting. Um, yeah. Like, the whole cast of Friends was, like, executed. Yeah. That was funny. Um, <laughs> yeah. They're all dead. Um, um, yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah, I think that, like, uh, Obama was on the list, too. Like, it was, like, Obama and, like, the cast friends. But, yeah, like, uh, anyway, so... So, uh, to, to bring it back a little bit to, to Kamala... Um, yeah. And her... Um, just to go a little deeper into this article. So, one thing that is absolutely instrumental to her career was her relationship when she was in her early twenties with, uh, with one Willie Brown, who I think then was still the mayor, um, of, uh, of San Francisco. He's a longtime mayor and was uh, 30 years her senior and technically married. Okay, here we go. I'm going to read this part. It's hard to think honestly about the origins of the rise of Harris without grappling with the reality of the role of Willie Brown. He helped her. He put her on a pair of state boards that required not much work and paid her more than $400,000 across five years on top of her salary as a prosecutor. He gave her a BMW. He helped her too, though, in a way that was less immediately material, but arguably far more enduringly important. Uh, Brown, of course, was the darling of the well-to-do set, if you will. Uh, And she was the girlfriend, so she met, you know, everybody who's anybody as a result of being his girl. Uh, John Burton, who was part of what was called the Burton machine. Um, I believe Phil Burton was uh, the longtime congressman in what is now Nancy Pelosi's seat in San Francisco. Um, When he died in the early 80s, his widow took over, and then when she died in 1987, Nancy Pelosi was elected to it and stays on it to this day. Anyways, uh, Phil Burton's brother John um, is a former San Francisco congressman and chairman of the Democratic Party, said, I met Kamala through through Willie, and I I think it's fair to say that most of the people in San Francisco met her through Willie. Dan Adario, uh, who worked for the DA's office, said uh, Willie was the guy that put her right in the ball game. He made her. So, you know, a lot of people have said this when there was like the kind of, you know, when Biden was doing his selection, that any reference to her relationship with Willie Brown was inherently sexist and what you could expect, basically, you know, how dare you say this, blah, blah, blah. But it is a little bit curious, is it not? Uh, I mean, I guess like, uh, it's. I mean, I feel like it's not that curious because, it's not that like, it, I mean, uh, yeah, it's yeah. It kind of makes sense. Like, you know, uh, she dated somebody powerful. 
And then, like, you know, in some way that facilitated her rise. Yeah, I mean, I guess, like, sure, I definitely think, like, Kamala is, like, embedded in, like, definitely, like, a, a political machine. Yeah, like, I don't know. Well, I don't know what the sexist uh, implication would be. Like, maybe, oh, she's only uh, successful because of him. Like, I guess, you know. Like, she slept no, with Willie Brown to get an entree she, yeah. into the political like, world of, of yeah. high San Francisco society. Um, That's not to, like, discredit, like, her accomplishments such as they are. Like, I don't know if, like, you know. It works. Uh, so, I mean. Like, yeah. Like, <laughs> everybody, you know, as Obama said, you didn't build that. Like, everybody, like, you know, uh has like these sort of things whether they're like very small scale or or they're or they're larger so yeah definitely i would uh you know in general uh agree with like the idea that like she didn't uh like you know just pull herself up by by her bootstraps for sure um like uh but you know, is Kamala, like, really as spooky, like, as Tulsi, or spooky as Pete? Like, what's the angle, like, you know, where, like, uh, I feel like there's, like, uh, there might be some, like, you know, I'm trying to find, like, you know, the angle. I feel like the birther stuff, like, doesn't really do it, like, you know, I'm trying to see, like, where, you know, is it, uh, it doesn't seem to be, like, you know. I I think the two most fruitful lines are, her direct, her deep, intimate connections with like all of the wealthiest political donors in San Francisco, going back to like when she was in her twenties, um, yeah. and the Freemasonic uh, police people that you know, one of whom was working for her, and um, and the fact that they seem to be very plugged in into the communities in Los Angeles, uh, which you know, I, I think once she started looking at running for attorney general and then senator, um, the sort of political networks of power down in Los Angeles and Southern California, um, and particularly in the African-American community, would become more relevant to her. And it would be kind of, you know, it would be important at some point to sort of bring them on board um, and get their support. So it's, like, interesting that um, that among the sort of Southern California people that she incorporated into her office as AG um, was this, you know, uh, Masonic police officer guy. Um, yeah, it's really interesting that he was a fake cop because I feel like that is like one of the big controversies that you see circulating about Kamala Harris, you know, that she's obviously like, you know, in some respects, like a desirable candidate because she, you know, it would be the first black woman vice president. Uh, but at the same time, like, there's a little bit of controversy, like, because she's seen as someone who's, like, very much involved in, like, law enforcement and, like, has a very, like, specious record, you know, as, like, our friend Tulsi pointed out. Um, she, like, well, you know, uh, less people think, like, she's actually our friend, no, but, uh, like, or that we actually like Tulsi, no. But anyway, yeah, there's that weird connection. Oh, yeah, I was just saying there's that strange connection, uh, you know, where, uh, on, on one hand, like, she's kind of this inspirational candidate, like a symbol of racial harmony, but on the other hand, 
she's seen as a symbol of like the institution that all these protests are yeah, you know yeah. uh, and, directed against and so it's yeah it's well, a very strange like ambiguity to her and the fact that like this dude this this weird dude associated with her was like not like you know uh, was a masonic police officer particularly like invested in like the idea of being like the first yeah, police and, force and and clearly uh, despite very I mean, sort of like, going into a sheriff station and kind of exposing themselves to getting arrested, they seem to have a very high opinion of already existing police. Yeah. I mean, it, it not only in their Masonic police incarnation, but, uh, for example, that video of the Trayvon Martin protests where he's standing up there with, like, an LAPD captain and one of the leading pastors in uh, South Central and, you know, they're shouting him out as part of this coalition, you know, you know, police, Freemasons, uh, preachers uh, and, you know, anti-gang task force and all that stuff. Um, it, it's very interesting that they're so cop friendly and she is so cop friendly, uh, though. I mean, not not to say that the cops necessarily kind of love her. Um, I've heard various stories about her sort of like disrespecting cops or just <laughs> sort of doing whatever she wanted it kind of being well i'm um, sure like now like the diehard like blue lives matter people like aren't on board with kamala either even though she'll be criticized like from the left uh i'm sure like mm-hmm. the, you know like the cops are like see her as part of like you know a anti-cop insurgency or something you know the really diehard blue lives mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, but it's also there is something um, there. There's something murky uh, with all these people that have financed her campaign and financed Gavin Newsom's political career, um, and even people like Pelosi and Feinstein. Where um, the interesting thing about like John Paul Getty Jr., who is the kind of the previous generation of Getty um, in sort of the mid 20th century, is that he was a Republican. But he was also one of the main donors and benefactors of the Democratic political machine that ran San Francisco. Um, And uh, so many magazine and news articles sort of just write this off as like a quirky, bipartisan, billionaire kind of thing where, oh, he's like, personally, he's a Republican, but he built good friendships with these Democrats. And, you know, just uh, like they kind of play it up like he's just a moderate, sensible kind of, um, you know, almost a disinterested, uh, enlightened observer of politics and <laughs> who has no material interests of his own. But I think it's very interesting that it's like this entire often very performatively, uh, performatively liberal and even sometimes like hard leftist um, kind of coterie of politicians from San Francisco um, often end up kind of supporting things that, you know, uh, maybe a right wing billionaire would want to do, um, like being like tough on crime and uh, throwing the parents of truant children in prison um, and uh, yeah. not prosecuting Catholic child, uh, Catholic priest sex abuse, which uh, right. which which is true. According to a report circulating right now. Um, uh, basically, when a victims group uh, in the early 2000s was trying to uh, obtain um, prosecution files and discovery from various DA offices in the Bay Area to help them uh, sue uh, various Catholic dioceses for abuse that had occurred, um, weirdly, Kamala Harris's uh, DA office in San Francisco was the only one that 86 all of their documents of all their investigations and didn't share them with this victims group. And uh, 
apparently did not prosecute uh, a single Catholic priest in San Francisco uh, from 2004 to 2011, and was apparently the only of all the 50 largest cities in America. All of them prosecuted at least one clergyman who uh, who would abuse children during that period. I mean, this is right after like the whole spotlight thing blew up. Mm-hmm. So there was a lot of prosecutions going on. She was the only one, one out of fifty, that did not prosecute a single priest. And there are a lot of Catholic churches in San Francisco. And uh, the maybe this has something to do with it. The a lot of the um, sort of uh, indigenous uh, political operators, if you will, many are, I would say, almost predominantly Irish Catholic and to a lesser extent, like Italian Catholics um, coming from kind of going back a century ago. Um, Mm -hmm. Newsom, Gavin Newsom's family um, definitely falls into that category, as does uh, his ex-wife, Kimberly Guilfoyle. Her father was from Ireland and was uh, a a kind of a a famous political operator in the city. Um, But yeah, this is like kind of getting into the world of like uh, anti-Catholic conspiracies. Is 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 anti-Masonry like you know? I'm wondering where like this falls in terms of like you know uh, the like genealogy of of uh, anti-Masonic sentiment. Were they generally like anti-Papist type? people or did they uh like was it just because the american masons like are protestants like they're not uh catholics but it's interesting like you know uh i mean there obviously were feelings on both sides like like levi's feelings uh you know he was very much against the protestant masons but maybe not so much an idea of catholic masonry Um, that's a really it's a really good question and um like to answer it fully, I'd probably have to circle back and, like, do more research. But from from as much as I understand, um, I think there often was, much like how uh, lodges in Freemasonry were racially segregated until relatively modern times, um, there was probably uh, a prohibition on Catholics, both from the Protestants not wanting Catholics to join and also from church, Catholic churches prohibiting their members from joining Protestant mm-hmm. Freemason lodges. Um, yeah, I've so noticed, I noticed like, on Catholic Twitter, some of the stuff, like, they always hate Masons. They're always talking oh, yeah, shit yeah. about Masons. Like, I, I think, uh, I think yeah. if you get to, um, like, tradcaths of today, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, they definitely They're... view uh, Protestant Freemasonry as a kind of apostate force and a negative force. Yeah, um, yeah. For sure. But but then again... The heresy um, of Americanism or whatever, you know. Exactly. But... Um, but then again, you have to, like, for one, you have to kind of zoom back to the Knights Templar, who, yeah. you know, existed before the Protestant Reformation. They were definitely were Catholic. Catholic. Yeah. And, and then today, even today, and um, I don't know if any to guess, what extent yeah. these are well, conflicted, where... but you have you you have the Knights of Malta, yeah, which right. are uh, the Sovereign Military Order of Malta, which is a uh, like a diplomatically recognized, um, almost like like landless city state. Um, like they have their own passports, they can travel. Um, they almost have like diplomatic immunity. I mean, the actual like members of the Knights of Malta, um, yeah. and they operate kind of as an order within the Catholic Church, um, and uh, under some kind of jurisdiction of the Pope. The various popes have been friendlier and less friendly um, towards them. I think uh, Cardinal 
uh, Burke is from New York, I believe, uh, who's kind of a sketchy figure, pretty right-wing um, Catholic. Mm-hmm. He, I believe, is, uh, if not the, I think Matthew Festing was the most recent, like, grandmaster of the order. I think he might have been dismissed by Pope Francis, but um, I want to say uh, Bur- Raymond Burke, I think, is the cardinal, um, who's American, who is, uh, he holds kind of one of the preeminent positions in the actual Knights of Malta um, today. Now, when I was looking at the history of the the actual official branch of Freemasonry that is Knights Templar, there is a sort of sub-lodge um, or a sub-right within that that is called the Knights of Malta. So it can get a little mm-hmm. confusing. Like, there's multiple kind of Knights of Malta. Yeah. There's multiple Knights Templar. But Yeah, everyone but, wants to be the true, you know, yeah, like uh, the yeah. real, yeah. And, and um, I would say that, like, but there is a sort of Catholic variation. And, and the, the Catholic Knights of Malta, I mean, that's where most of the Catholic bigwigs in the CIA, like William Casey and uh, James Jesus Angleton yeah. um, and uh, and people like that, um, a lot of really big famous names. And they definitely had some kind of kind of sketchy covert involvement, I would say, in, like, Cold War intrigues Um, because you had a lot of famous, very wealthy business people, politicians, intelligence officers, generals, um, you know, media moguls, things like that that were in the Catholic uh, SMOM. Um, and they even started inviting Protestants into that order. So I believe that George H.W. Bush was a Knight of Malta. Um, This is, like, more probably starting in maybe the 70s or the 80s. Um, And um, you can kind of, I think there's also a group that gets talked about a lot on, you know, various conspiracy, by various conspiracy researchers called Le Cercle, um, which I think was based in France, uh, which is kind of like a, uh, it sounds almost like a a Catholic version of of maybe... uh, like high-level Protestant Freemasonry, but like very enmeshed uh, in a kind of um, political strategic sense, like during the Cold War in the kind of the anti-communist crusade, if you will. Um, and there's a uh, Opus Dei, right? Of course, too. Yes, yeah. yes. Which is strange. Which is actually like a very modern phenomenon. I, I believe it was founded in like the 1920s in Spain. Um, mm-hmm. which would have been before the Civil War, before Franco. But I think Franco was an awful big fan of Opus Dei. And uh, we've had a lot of Catholic jurists like Antonin Scalia, um, maybe I think a Samuel Alito. Um, yeah, well, were both it's so of much Day. of the, I think that like it's crazy, like the proportion of Catholics to, you know, uh, and on, on the Supreme Court. I mean, I guess, you know, uh, Catholicism maybe like tends to emphasize like, you know, legal tradition or, mm-hmm. uh, you know, thought, I don't know wh- why, I honestly don't know why, uh, you know, and like, uh, I'm not like promoting any kind of like, uh, <laughs> anti-papist, like, you know, uh, like the Pope is like running as his conspiracy theory necessarily, but yeah. it is a curious fact, like of how many, how many Catholics are on the court. Um, it is, it is. Yeah. And, and, you know, Catholics, uh, I mean, people back in the 70s, uh, I forget which conspiracy researcher, um, maybe it was Sherman Skolnick, um, who was a guy from Chicago, is great, but I, I, I think maybe it was him that, you know, called them Catholics in action. You know, CIA was mm-hmm. Catholics in action. Uh, <laughs> but there's uh, definitely something there. I mean, like, like Catholic, like elements of the Catholic Church uh, helped set up rat lines for Nazi war criminals at the end of World 
World War II to get them to Spain and then to South America. Um, and they definitely, on that Cold War binary, um, they definitely sided with, like, the kind of global right with both capitalism and fascism um, as something that was preferable to um, Bolshevism um, and communism and, and things of that. And they, they uh, expended great efforts throughout, you know, uh, the second half of the 20th century to um, sort of, uh, he, yeah, like to reassert their authority um over on a kind of global scale and not get you know shut out um um what uh yeah uh, i mean uh, joe biden will be like the first catholic president if he wins like in a pretty long time right when was the last i mean john mccain is catholic he would have been a catholic president has it been since jfk that there was a catholic president I, i actually don't believe john mccain i believe he is an orangeman i think um I know he's Irish, but he's, I believe, a uh, a uh, maybe a Presbyterian or something like that, um, or he was. Um, because I don't think I mean not that it's really relevant anymore. Um, oh no no he yeah. was uh, he he was raised Episcopalian and then um, mm-hmm. and then uh, kind of trended towards identifying as a uh, Baptist later on. Um, hmm. And uh, so he, the only Catholics that even were kind of on the ticket um, were, I believe, John Kerry. And he's like the waspiest Catholic, uh, he, the, the, like imaginable. Um, but mm-hmm. he was, uh, he was Catholic and he lost. And I think literally the last one was John F. Kennedy. And yeah. if you want to count it, Robert F. Kennedy, who both got a bullet in their head. So... I think that that kind of puts a little cold water on like the papist uh, conspiracy theory that you know they're oh, yeah, running everything. Sure. Um, um, yeah, it's also just like funny to uh, you know think that like uh, think of uh, Tradcath Twitter uh, in light of the fact that Joe Biden will be the first Catholic president since since JFK. Like you know most of the like you know the the more hardcore ones are really like you know more pro Trump. I think or tend to to being pro Trump. Uh, but yeah, yeah. like, uh, it's very funny when like, you know, they like hate the current Pope. Anyway, that's a, that's a, that's a sidebar, well, but it, yeah, what, it, yeah, it's a, it's a, the interesting position they're in right now, because you're right. Like a lot of them do have problems with the Pope and, um, and have problems with like post Vatican II Catholicism and really don't like, uh, Joe, I think Joe Biden represents something evil. They don't really give a shit that he's like a lifelong, you know, Irish Catholic. They, they see him as basically a cafeteria Catholic, um, mm, who they yes. kind of have a little bit of, um, they don't have the highest opinion of in the first place, you know, like they definitely, I think would accuse Joe Biden of, uh, you know, engaging in relativism in moral relativism. Um, yeah. It's kind of like how Muslims are always complaining about Ilhan Omar, uh, you know, like, uh, sure, well, sure. Like a lot of them are, but yeah. yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, I bring that up relative to like, what are, what's Kamala's, you know, background? Like, is she like, you know, into any kind of like Tulsi type belief or is she like, uh, you know, more conventional. Like, is she is she Protestant? Like, is she I believe as far, is she Baptist? Like, yeah, yeah. as well, I believe as she's actually kind of an interesting grab bag. Um, I believe she primarily was raised as and uh, sort of identifies as a Baptist because mm-hmm. I guess her uh, th- that's what her father was. Um, 
I, I think maybe her Wikipedia page said she was sort of raised like with both Hindu and like Baptist kind of religious traditions. It sounds like her parents mm-hmm. were pretty secular. Um, yeah, that makes and sense. so she didn't really grow up with like a strong religious background. And also of note is that her husband is Jewish. Um, so wow, she's but really she like a. I mean, yeah, she's got kind of a convergence of all these yeah, different things. It's yeah, like well, it's like the Getty like, uni- she's woman's quite set. a unifier. Yeah, she's really yeah. A, yeah. What um, was, yeah, let's see. Uh, uh, although that's really oh. like uh, that's really grasping for it. like you know, wow, the first Jewish vice president's like you know husband. Like <laughs> what you know, like well, yeah. I, as really, far as I as far yeah. as I know, even though um, apparently she has a she has a Yiddish nickname from her in laws, uh, Mamala. Um, Mm. and, but, uh, as far as I know, she did not convert in order to marry, uh, her husband, who's a very prominent, um, lawyer. Yeah, no, I'm sure that that would have been mentioned, like, you know, uh, especially like maybe relative to running against Bernie or, or whatever. Like, I feel like if she had converted to Judaism, I mean, we heard about how like Ivanka was Jewish technically or whatever, you know, like, uh. Yeah, uh, and I mean, hey, if you so go through the whole, if you, go through she... the, you take the classes and read the Torah, like, you know, uh, God bless, like, you know. Yeah, I think you, it's you a big Jewish, effort. Like, yeah. Yeah, it, it does. Judaism. It takes some, it's not just getting dunked in a, in a pool like a Baptist. Um, yeah, or just saying two sentences like a Muslim. Uh, I, I it's probably much. <laughs> yeah, it's probably the easiest, yeah, uh, yeah, the, probably the easiest thing to do is to become Muslim. But so yeah. uh, as, um, uh, to that point, um, the, I think a quote you mentioned earlier uh, from this Politico article, how um, uh, somebody said that she has, you know, the genealogy to move in any circles. Um, so the person who said that was a uh, socialite attorney uh, named Sharon Owsley, who I guess is the um, the widow of a wealthy, uh, plastic surgeon from San Francisco. Um, I'm reading this article from SF gate from 2002 reinventing life after 50 SF socialite discovers law and order at 54. So this woman is like a socialite who, uh, became, um, uh, a lawyer and now has some kind of public position. Um, uh, after graduating law school at 56, what I found immediately, uh, Hold on. First, I'll read the quote. Um, Recently, in the sitting room of the Pacific Heights House of Socialite-turned-attorney Sharon Owsley, I visited with Owsley as well as Debbie Meslow, a longtime Harris friend, and we talked about these inroads Harris was able to make. Uh, Kamala also comes from, you know, kind of an intellectually established family, Meslow said. Owsley agreed. A very fine family, she said. Her mother was East Indian and came to this country and became a renowned scientist, and her father came to this country and became a professor of economics. So she has, you know, the genealogy to move in any circles. But I also have to emphasize that you don't need that, but she had it all right. Um... Just as a side note, I want to mention Sharon Owsley. I wish I could have researched this earlier, but it immediately makes me think of uh, Augustus Owsley Stanley III, um, who was the LSD king um, of the San Francisco Bay Area in the early 1960s and became the mm. sound engineer and kind of hanger on uh, and like road manager of the Grateful Dead um, and was at, like for a brief time in the mid 60s, one of the largest LSD manufacturers in the entire country and is also the uh, grandson of a former senator and governor of Kentucky. Um, hmm. That's where the Owsley comes from. I wonder so, if there is a connection. Yeah. Like, uh, yeah. It would uh, come 
come uh, through her her husband John Q Jack Owsley, but that's just such a strange name that ha- yeah. kind of uh, it. It seems it plausible if they're both in San reverberates throughout the Bay Area um, um, or in California. Um, yeah, but. Dr. John Owsley, uh, uh, renowned palace, blah, 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 um, cleft lip uh, surgeries he specialized in. Um, yeah. yeah. Oh, okay. He followed in the footsteps of his father, um, a naval admiral and deputy surgeon general of the Navy, uh, and his grandfather by graduating from the Vanderbilt School of Medicine, um, although Nashville had been the family home for several generations. Um he uh, he went to UCSF. Um, we'll uh, we'll see. I mean, uh, he might yeah, be from very, an extended version of that family. It's a yeah. To go back to her quotation, I think it's just a very interesting theme, like this idea of like genealogy from the uh, you know mention of like being like a, a Templar or a, a Mason or a Masonic police officer like by blood, uh, you know. So it's such a strange notion, and then this weird this weird kind of hedge statement where it's like, oh, I just need to say like you don't need that, you know. Like, is this some kind of like you know lip service to like you know a little, uh, a little curious for yeah, a, like a person that married into the Getty family to be saying um, well yeah it oh, I'm sorry no Sharon like, Owsley yeah who married this like married into this great wealth um, yeah it sounds like definitely catching yourself like exactly the same way where people were concerned about uh, you know Colin's relationship with Willie Brown you know like oh you know but that's not the you know the reason for it I'm like sure but again it's kind of the line that. Uh, you know, we uh, we walk with this stuff. It's like, uh, you know, that one finds oneself walking uh, in, in, in the situation where uh, it's like, okay, well, do these uh, connections have uh, significance? You know, like where, uh, you know, like, or, or should we deflect our, our attention from them? Uh, you know, it's... Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's a... like, uh, yeah, it's a... It's an interesting uh, idea, like the, and it, you know, it comes in, yeah, in the whole, the, this whole kind of uh, preoccupation, um, and even, like, in the, like, birther stuff, where it's like, okay, let's look at who, like, her family is, uh, you know, let's, uh, it's, yeah, it's interesting to have a comment even that article before there was kind of this, this whole thing. I mean, as you said, like, she was born in Oakland, or, like, she was just straight up born, like, in a state, like, you know, and the idea is that, like, oh, because her parents were immigrants, therefore she's not eligible, which doesn't make any sense. No, like, that, I don't uh, think that, hold, that doesn't hold up. It's just sort of a distraction and maybe even yeah. a productive distraction for, you know, Biden-Harris to sort of, it's easy for them to kind of swat that down. Yeah. It, yeah, and I well, and I understand like on one level like it's because like uh, well of course it's because like she's black and like the people are like oh you know like the people just go nuts with that stuff like they just will always like you know be like oh you're not you're foreign like you know this is like, so- somehow uh, but it is interesting like that so, like even despite all reason like despite the the fact like this this concept like came up like uh, you know it could just be an effect of like uh, maybe it's an aspect of racism. Maybe you could say, like, you know, because people are, like, uh, fixated on, like, her, her family. Like, it just comes to mind like, when they talk about her. Um, or, you know, uh, yeah, maybe, like, uh, it has something to do with, uh, you know, this general, like, fixation in this milieu about, like, you know, uh, genealogy um, or, or, or bloodlines and that type of thing. Um, you know, it's, yeah, uh, um... yeah, when you follow these connections, like, a lot of the time, those are the ones that people are fixated on. 
Uh, yeah, yeah. And there's just, um, here's, uh, maybe this can, um, so we don't go too long. This is, uh, maybe the last big Kamala thing I'll, uh, I'll bring up from this political article, which, uh, which talks about how, let's see, um, one of, uh, one of these Pacific Heights, uh, socialites, uh, D.D. Wilsey, um, uh, was at a, at a Kamala fundraiser in 2020 um, and said she was there to thank her because, quote, uh, she was very, very helpful. Uh, Wilsey said when uh, the reporter reached her in Newport, Rhode Island, where she's been summering, um, and, quote, when my son was recently appointed ambassador to Austria and I said, Kamala, I really wanted to be sure to come to this because I wanted to thank you for being so nice to Trevor. And she said it was the right thing to do. And I said, um, but Kamala, people don't always do the right thing. And I want you to know how much I appreciate it. Um, and so uh, I guess... Um, ambassador to Austria from California? Yes. And here's the thing. I think we have a kind of um, a subliminal hat trick going on with the uh, ambassador to Austria position. Um, yeah. And I'll lay it out in uh, in one, two, three. So, OK, this one, uh, Donald Trump's pick, who is a uh, uh, interest, I guess, trainer. Um, I want to say who the ambassador, what their name is. Um, Trevor, Trevor D. Trainer. Um who uh, I suppose is the uh, yeah a, you know a wealthy San Francisco heir <clears throat> was uh, is Donald Trump's ambassador to Austria right now um, and I guess what he said for this article is that Kamala is an old friend we all kind of grew up together you know Gavin Kamala and many others um, he supported her for DA um, and she was one of a number of different senators who put in a good word for me with the staffs of the Foreign Relations Committee. Um, that was really oh, nice I of see. her. Oh, I see. So in the Senate, she, like, put in a good word for him. To, yeah. to, so that they would vote for him to become ambassador okay. of Austria. I thought that, so, like, you know, at, in her capacity as senator from California, there's, like, ambassadors from, like, each state, like, honorary ambassadors or something. Oh, no, but, no, 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 yeah. no. This guy is the yeah. U.S. ambassador to Austria. I um, see, but comes yeah. from this, But comes from this, like, San Francisco high money. Um, right, And yes, that's nothing yes. new. Like, she, rich people always she get She championed to his case, like, yes. uh, to get him through. Yeah. Yeah. Um, which, you know, okay, that's fine. Um, but then let's rewind the clock back to when... A, a uh, uh, to the last time a Californian uh, was in the White House as president and who he picked to be the ambassador to Austria. Now, um, the first one, uh, well, I'm going to go backwards, okay? So the ambassador, I believe, in 86-87 was a, uh, a very well-known billionaire uh, cosmetics heir named Ronald Lauder. And Ron Lauder, um, he's still around today. Um, He's now, I believe, president of the uh, World Jewish Congress um, and an heir to the Estee Lauder companies um, and is, like, an incredibly plugged-in guy um, in, I believe his name has popped up... uh, uh, well, most recently, in the efforts to privatize, um, like, state-run TV networks in the former Eastern Bloc in the 1990s, um, he teamed up with a bunch of guys. Uh, I think Ambassador uh, Mark Palmer, who is, like, a real, like, deep state career, like, diplomat operator. Um, 
especially in the Eastern Bloc in the 80s, and sort of managing the, quote, transition to capitalism, which meant basically, like, steal all the state-run industries and, like, strip them down for parts and then, you know, bring in foreign capital to build up something new that would sigh up the entire populations until into loving capitalism. Um, so he did a lot of that in the 90s. But also the interesting thing is that, um, and not, not really reported on this much, but uh, back last year when Epstein, you know, a lot of stories about Jeffrey Epstein were coming out. One factoid that I found very intriguing was that uh, he was found to have a valid Austrian passport um, maybe when he got stopped through customs in uh, about 1987. And basically... Um, I kind of didn't have a really convincing story for how he got it, except that, like, he had friends or something or connections in the Austrian government. And um, I think there are extensive kind of overlapping social connections between Ronald Lauder and Jeffrey Epstein, and they had a lot of associates in common. And I I haven't been able to uh, prove it yet, nor do I think we maybe we could ever... But I think it's very interesting that when Ronald Lauder became the U.S. ambassador to Austria, uh, this young, relatively not super, you know, still up and coming financier guy, Jeffrey Epstein, who was also flying around the world like Saudi Arabia. And he claimed to, that he ran a business of like getting people's money back from like, uh, you know, on behalf of like, you know, Middle Eastern regimes like the Saudis. Right, yeah, and he had a Saudi passport, didn't he? He, he yeah. did. He had a Saudi passport and he had an Austrian passport. And so when you wonder, like, uh, where did he get this Austrian passport? Did Ronald Lauder kind of put in a good word and hook it up uh, or use his uh, use his clout as U.S. ambassador? Um, maybe. Um, but it's just a, it, a, that's an interesting connection for Ambassador of Austria. And then the, the one his uh, his previous ambassador Ronald Reagan's previous ambassador to Austria is going to circle right back to San Francisco in maybe one of the sketchiest threads in this whole thing her name uh, she served from 1983 to 1986 and her name was Helene Van Damme um, and Helene Van Damme uh, had a long history with Ronald Reagan going back to the 1960s when she served as one of his secretaries when he was governor of California. Um, Now, that wasn't the only person she was secretary for. She was originally, I believe, from, yeah, she was born in Austria in 1938 and and, uh, eventually uh, came to America in the late 50s, um, was married several times, um, was a very kind of right-wing person, very critical of LBJ's Great Society, uh, loved uh, Ronald Reagan's, you know, conservative politics. But while she was working for Ronald Reagan in Sacramento, she was also working for uh, a German gentleman. We're talking about SS Hauptschirmführer Otto Albrecht Alfred von Bolschwing, um, who was a uh, Nazi uh, SS officer, spy, and war criminal um, who worked uh, closely with Adolf Eichmann um, in developing plans for the confiscation of Jewish property uh, both in Romania and uh, in British Palestine, um, and uh, came here uh, 
I was listening to, to uh, May Brussels' uh, radio broadcast about him from, like, 1981, and she described him as a minor Galen, uh, referring to Reinhard Galen, the uh, Nazi general, who was basically taken over, like, absorbed by the CIA um, after World War II and then was sent back to Germany to establish the BND, uh, West Germany's intelligence service, um, and ran that until uh, kind of getting forced out in 1968. But basically for a time, um, once... Uh, uh, once Galen was sent back to West Germany, um, Otto von Bolschwing allegedly was uh, was put in charge of all the Nazi paperclip assets that had been brought over to America. So he was kind of the head Nazi uh, sort of organizing maybe the activities of all the other Nazi scientists and rocket engineers and, uh, you know, torture artists and war criminals and stuff. And, um, and he ended up, uh, becoming the head of a company, um, called TCI. I think it was transcontinental computers, uh, international, um, which was a defense contractor technology company that worked in classified uh, classified satellite research. Um, they helped provide uh, satellite assistance to Israel during the 1967 Arab-Israeli War. Um, they had various uh, classified contracts. And Bolshwing was brought on as a consultant initially in the late 60s, but then he was made president of the company, I believe, in 1970. Wow. Um, because the board of directors loved him so much. And who was on the board of directors. Gordon Getty, the fourth son of J. Paul Getty, um, was on the board. And on it as well was uh, one of his best friends um, and business associates who was a, uh, a, a district judge in uh, San Francisco in many years and a very powerful figure, a man by the name of uh, William A. Newsom a.k.a. the father of Governor Gavin Newsom. So uh, he, uh, William Newsom, was the chief counsel to uh, TCI. Um, He also had a seat on the board. And uh, I'm sorry, it was J. Paul Getty Jr., who is uh, Bill Newsom's contemporary. And um, he was on the board as well. Um, There's also a Greek named Emmanuel uh, Fnethnakis, sorry if I mangled that, uh, who was a Greek with direct contacts to Aristotle Onassis, past president of ITT, which was involved in the Allende coup in Chile. Um, and Helen van Damme um, was hired to translate various German contracts and documents for TCI when they were kind of at their apex. And I, I guess according to May Brussel, one of the reasons why Bolschwing was made president was because of his extensive, impeccable contacts in Germany and South America. Um, <laughs> with, uh, with certain business interests, uh, that, uh, you know, maybe had an interest in defense technology and, uh, Basically, uh, that company blew up in a huge stock fraud scandal in 1972. Uh, miraculously, uh, Bolschwing's name mostly stayed out of the papers then, and his Nazi past remained uh, un- undiscovered by the public. Um, he didn't even bother to change his name when he came here, but uh, nobody found it. But it was referred to at the time as the largest stock fraud in California history. And then 
after that, um, that company, I mean, Bolschwing eventually, through an investigation of another Nazi war criminal uh, that the DOJ was doing in the late 70s, they accidentally discovered that, that Otto von Bolschwing was, in fact, a uh, SS Hauptschirmführer. And um, and the gig was kind of up for him, and then he had some kind of strained brain condition, and then he died in, in I think, 1982, sort of disgraced and, and facing a pending uh, deportation. But the CIA and the Pentagon and these, I would have to imagine, some of these business associates of his, who were all very high in San Francisco high society, had to be somewhat aware of his Nazi past. And, I mean... That's really the reason why he was there was because of his experience as like an SS officer yeah. and uh, and he was a, of course of also of high Prussian nobility um, I should mention um, yeah. much like uh, Werner von Braun and his whole family was um, I like how the Getty thing loops back around to both. Uh, Gavin Newsom and and Kamala Harris. Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, the Gettys basically, uh, like I said, like they they bankrolled both of these people's careers, um, and uh, to a lesser extent, uh, uh, Nancy Pelosi. I wouldn't say they made Nancy Pelosi because her father was the mayor of Baltimore and probably had like mafia connections. Not nothing against Italian Americans, but you know, I, I think it's kind of likely for that that kind of era. Um but I think maybe her entree into becoming the permanent congresswoman of that district in San Francisco, I mean somebody the Gettys had to at least sign off or co-sign uh, her ascendancy to that position. And you know, I mean what's the one thing I want people always say about Nancy Pelosi is that, well, you know, uh, you might not always agree with her, blah, 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 but man, like, she's really good at fundraising. She knows how to get the donors in line. And the donors that she has the most direct access to are the high society families in San Francisco, who I think we can see are like pushing a very uh, bare minimum kind of neoliberal um, kind of you know, pro-business agenda that is cloaked in, you know, what Sean Hannity used to call San Francisco values. <laughs> I mean, it, it's honestly, it's like mask on. Like, I'm, I mean, I remember when I was an adolescent growing up in the Bay Area, like, I remember when Gavin Newsom is like the young new mayor legalized gay marriage for the first time and kind of what a, I think in retrospect, like that was a, you know, a publicity stunt. I think it was, you know, it was good um, and all that. But I think you always have to be vigilant with, uh, I think with, you know, liberals, um, that when they're doing something which is uh, socially progressive but does not affect uh, material uh, political power or economic power, you know, like maybe the thing they're doing out in public is a little bit of a smokescreen for serving the, you know, the, the interests of the real powerful behind the scenes. Um, I think you see this again and again with the Democratic Party. Yeah. Now the ambassador to Austria thing, like, the depth of it is, that's a very spooky connection. It's strange. Yeah. So, I mean, after, you know, and the, and Helene Van Damme worked for Otto von Bolschwing for many years, and then she uh, moved to, yeah, she br- was brought along to the White House when he became president. Initially, she had a kind of mid-level bureaucratic job um, that was actually, I think, she was the person responsible for screening potential hirees to the administration for security clearances. <laughs> so think about that. Yeah. Like, the people that were coming into the White House, you had this woman who I think it's safe to say was uh, a bit of a Nazi, 
and had worked for Nazis and um, and had done all this spooky work for like defense contracting companies um, in California was then tasked with deciding who gets you know a security clearance for what job and who can have top secret info and how many you know suspicious characters uh, could she have slipped through um, not that I mean Ronald Reagan was kind of all about it and George Bush was too. So it's not like they had to do a lot of slipping through. But I mean, as opposed to maybe just a normal bureaucrat who might. Well, yeah, it was, it could have been delegated to her. She would have been a reliable person to delegate, you know, uh, the task of screening people too. You can definitely tell she mm-hmm. would. I don't know what Helene Van Damme was, uh, was actually sort of did or oversaw as the, uh, ambassador to Austria, but definitely, um, just the overall connection of Otto von Bolschwing to Bill Newsom and uh, J.P. Getty Jr. is, uh, I mean, like a literal ironclad business connection. They were in business together. Is like, just, you know, for like the the father of like the super woke governor um, and former mayor of San Francisco, and uh, the family that sponsors all these liberals in politics. Like, what were they doing making classified satellite technology for? like the Pentagon and working with an SS captain. Yeah. It's, uh, uh it's food for thought, isn't it? Mm. Yeah. I guess, uh, we can wrap up there. Yeah. Uh, yeah. That, we'll that's bring it to your close. Uh, anyway. Yeah. Uh, I guess till next time audience. Yeah. The yeah. Jihad will continue. Uh, it will soon. It will S- stay vigilant. Yeah. All right. ICE, street violence and youth crime is at an all-time high. Can you tell me what you think is responsible for it? Well, I think the real problem is the justice system. The youth of the day see so much corruption going on in government and so many officials getting off just because they have a lot of money. They feel that if they have a lot of money, they'll be above the law. Actually, they're just in a quest to become high rollers. I've heard you mention that in some of your other interviews. Could you tell my viewers, what exactly is the definition of a high roller? Speed of life, fast. It's like walking barefoot over broken glass. It's like jumping rope on a razor blade. All lightning quick, decisions made. Lifestyle, plush. Female, rush. This high-profile personality who earns his pay illegally. Professional, liar. Schoolboys admire, young girls desire, very few live to retire. Cash flow extreme, dress code supreme, vocabulary obscene, definition street player, you know who I mean, the high rollers. Cause for enough cold cash to look the other way Look at the cars they will buy Benzes, Ferraris, trucks up high Beepers connecting players to big time deals With all of this technology, who needs to steal? Just live a life of leisure every night and day And you're living proof that crime does pay Your life is dangerous and reckless You eat fly guys and girls for breakfast You're a titan of the nuclear age Your muscle flex with the Uzi or 12 gauge And you love the game, that's why you boast Cause you're high-priced, high-speed, high-post, high-rolling <laughs>